Welcome back, everybody, to Bill's Chat, a pro football podcast. This is Josh, and with me tonight, as always, is Luca. Luca, how's it going tonight? I'm doing good. I am wide-eyed and ready to go this week, unlike last week where I was a little bit tired. So let's get to it. You know, I appreciated the zombie version of Luca, but I think for the defensive prospects we're going to be going over tonight, I am definitely excited about the fully alert version of Luca, but we do appreciate you powering through last time. So uh, before we get into football and what's been going on since we were last on the air, what's been going on with you? I feel like we dedicate all this time to this football team. We don't actually talk about ourselves. So I saw over the weekend you got to get dressed up a little bit. What was going on with you? Uh, yeah, we, I, or I should say myself, I was a co-best man, uh, for a listener of this podcast, uh, Nino's wedding. Congrats to him on Saturday. He finally became a married man, uh, to a wonderful Kristen. And, uh, it was a fun time. It was a small wedding, but, uh, it was a good time. Very, very good time. And, uh, other than that, it's actually been a pretty tame week since we last, uh, recorded. Congrats to Nino and Kristen. And so I got to ask you, I have given the best man speech several times. Um, Once it really felt like a friend that I hadn't been super close with just, you know, didn't really have a lot of options. So he picked me. And then another one was a guy I was really close with. And he actually picked me over some lifelong high school buddies he had. And I think they were a little bit sour about that. But that best man speech, it is intimidating. So before we get on to football, is that your first best man speech ever? It was my first best man speech, although I will call it what it was. It was a co best man speech yeah. where I wrapped it up. Um, so, I, you know, a props to a one Matt Callen on leading it off there. I think we had a very good, successful speech. It was both of our first time doing such a thing. And uh, I don't think you would have thought that that was our first time doing something of that manner. So I'm pretty proud of us. I, I thought we we hit it out of the park a little bit. There was it was a good time. Were you nervous ahead of time? A little bit. Yeah, there's, there's I'm, pressure I'm, there. I'm, yeah, I'm I'm a little more comfortable up speaking in front of people. I've been doing it professionally for a little bit there, not to mass quantities or not a lot, but I've been doing it. I think Callen uh, was maybe a little more nervous than I was, just because he's not as much of a speaker in that sense. So, um, but he did a great job. I remember we kind of were giving each other a little thumbs up. You know, I was giving him a little nods right before he got the mic and. We, uh, we knocked it out of the park. Yeah. The thing of it is, is when you get chosen to be the best man, you put pressure on yourself because you actually realize, okay, this is going to be in a video. They see the rest of their life. And if I just go up there and say, congrats and give them a little cheap toast, I'm going to be looked at as a failure. So I'm glad it went well. I'm glad you and Callan did well. And I'm glad you had yourself a good weekend. Me, I've been taking care of a sick kid all weekend. So I had nothing really to do other than sit around my house and just kind of think about Bill's draft ideas. And that's what we're going to get into tonight is we talked about the offensive side of the ball last week. This week, we're going to get a bunch of defensive thoughts out there as we go through the entire Buffalo Bills defensive depth chart position by position. Talk about where we think the Bills could spend some of those premium draft picks and really make a case at each position for why or why not they should be spending draft capital here in about three weeks. We are three weeks out, Luca. It doesn't seem like it should be that close, but it's getting here. Yeah, it's. I mean, it it does seem like, you know, it's only April 5th now and it's not exactly around the corner, but it really is. I mean, in, in our podcast terms, I think we only have three more recordings and then boom, we'll be right into it. So yeah, this is, it's exciting times. I, I'm very excited to dive into the defensive side and then the the excitement of leading into the draft and where will we go will just be gnawing at me. 
Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna go by fast. We're gonna have some good episodes lined up. We have we have a plan for what we're gonna do leading up to the draft. At some point, we're also gonna get an NFL schedule. We assume that we're gonna get to go over. But if you listen to last week's show, it took us about until the one hour mark to get into draft news because really, Luca, the NFL never sleeps, and it's been bombshell after bombshell. One week it was Von Miller. Last week it was Tyreek Hill getting traded from the Chiefs to the Dolphins. Well. The NFL may not be sleeping, but they're definitely resting right now. There hasn't been a whole lot of news to talk about. I mean, I don't think we can spend an hour talking about um, Devontae Parker going to the Patriots, right? Yeah, we don't need to. Definitely. That's for sure. Uh, There has been a couple of Bill's rumblings we can go through before we get into draft talk. I'm just going to really bring up the topic to you. You can tell me big deal, something to keep an eye on or something to completely ignore. So first of all, Patrick Peterson signed with the Minnesota Vikings, and he did so on his podcast, and it was brought out, I believe, on his podcast that the Bills were one of the teams interested in him, and we're going to talk about cornerback tonight, but we now know that the Bills were interested in Patrick Peterson. Jeremy Fowler over the weekend reported that the Bills were at least kicking the tires on Stefan Gilmore. So, Luca, it seems like the Bills are at least doing their due diligence on the cornerback position, which is interesting because Brandon Bean has said they are shopping in the clearance section at this point. So Patrick Peterson, Stefan Gilmore, maybe even Joe Hayden, um, for what that's worth, um, might be some ideas the Bills like. But do you think this is something to keep an eye on? Or do you think this is just a classic case of Bean not leaving any stone unturned? I definitely think it would be something to keep an eye on. I don't think it would be out of the realm of crazy to see something within the veteran market at that position, maybe explored deeper and possibly be something they view as a resolution for the glaring need that appears to be there in a way with the Trey White injury. So it's not crazy. I also wouldn't be shocked if nothing ends up coming of it. But um, I mean, Patrick Peterson interest definitely shows you that they were looking at veteran corners that wouldn't necessarily demand a huge wage, but would still be someone that you could view as a respectable starter in this league. The Stefan Gilmore reunion thing, we can probably get into more later, uh, potentially, and everything like that. But that's definitely an interesting and intriguing idea. I'm not sure how that works out financially, but would be fun to explore. And yeah, I, I don't think it's something that you should just ignore. It's definitely something to keep an eye on and see where we go from there. One other name that's been floated out there, and I don't think he's been directly tied to the Bills, but with Joe Shane and Brian Dable going down to New York and James Bradbury having played under Sean McDermott in Carolina and him having a really heavy contract that the Giants are looking to get out of, it just is an easy dot to connect that the Bills would kick the tires on James Bradbury. I don't think it's realistic, particularly at his current contract rate for the Bills to trade for him. I think what they're going to do is sit on the sidelines for this one. And if the Giants get to a point where they are just going to cut him, then I could see the Bills making that call. But I think James Bradbury is at a point in his career. He's still under 30. He played at a very high level two years ago. I don't think he needs to or is in position to give any team any kind of discount. So as cool as it would be to see him in Buffalo, That's not something that I would expect to be imminent from a Bill standpoint. But before we move on from cornerback, just real quick, Luca, how do you think Stefan Gilmore would be received back in Buffalo? I have maintained that I am a Gilmore fan. 
I know some of the comments his wife has made on social media over the years. Um, there was a comment. I don't, I don't want to even say if it was her, it was a comment, maybe even Gilmore made about how, when he went to new England, it was nice to be on a team that finally played in prime time. There was some slaps across the face to Buffalo. We get that, but an excellent player at one point during his time away from the bills in new England was considered the premier cornerback in the league. And he's not that guy anymore, but PFS still had him as a top 10 rated cornerback last year. I would be super excited about the idea how do you think Bills fans in general? I know it's a loaded question because we're asking you to speak for a whole large group of fans and there's going to be a lot of different opinions there. How do you think uh, Stefan Gilmore would be received back in Bills Mafia? The majority of the reception, I would believe it to be, or at least hope it to be uh, a positive reaction. I would, I would hope it to be something that they view, you know, ignore the past the past is the past. He obviously did things with New England and then on his way out the door of Buffalo, as you mentioned, uh, may have rubbed our nose in the failure that was the drought era, essentially. Um, but the eye, the, our all eyes are on winning a championship here. We should be focused on trying to win a championship. And if bringing Stefan Gilmore in is you know, viewed as the last key to make that happen, which honestly, it's hard to look at that and say it's not um, because Stefan Gilmore and then Trey coming back as a one, two is something to almost drool over. I, I would hope that people could see that and see the end goal and see what that could do for that goal and just be excited about the prospect. That is Stefan Gilmore being that finishing piece to finally bring that championship here to Western New York. I think finishing piece is a great way to put it. You look at what that secondary could do with Hayden Poyer and Teron Johnson, along with White and Gilmore, who's still playing at a high level. And I will say one thing to Bills fans, anybody that does have hesitation about Gilmore, it's important to remember he was drafted in 2012. If you go back to 2012, the owner of the Buffalo Bills was Ralph, Ralph Wilson. The head coach was Chan Gailey. And then Stefan Gilmore went on to play for Rex Ryan and Doug Marone. So it's pretty understandable why Gilmore would have a sour taste in his mouth about Buffalo and the Buffalo experience. He didn't get to play for the Sean McDermott, Brandon Bean. We're organized. We have our stuff together and we're a destination team. He didn't get to see that version. He got to see the full fledged drought version. And that's why he has a sour taste in his mouth. Speaking of the drought, Luca, I know people are wondering, are we going to be playing the big three game tonight? And of course we are. Later in the show, Luca and I are going to draft the best defensive draft picks of the drought. We're talking about defense tonight. It only makes sense to make our big three topic of defensive side of the ball. All right, Luca, just a couple of quick hits here. Vaughn Miller put a video on his YouTube channel that basically went through his entire day, the process of signing with the Bills, getting offers from the Rams and other teams, talking to his agent. There was even a scene there where he's on the phone with Josh Allen, and then a really cool scene where he got the offer from the Bills. He was excited, and he talked it through with his dad. And I don't know if you're a wrestling fan or not, but there's a term called putting over, where it's like you just do whatever you can to make the other guy look good. His dad was putting over Buffalo big time, and it was really cool to see talking about how they have a stacked young roster. They may have the best young quarterback in football, and they are a missing piece away, a Von Miller away from winning the Super Bowl. 
Luca, did you have a chance to check out that video? I did. Um, and I think you did a great early description of it. I, it was, it was a big time, uh, pep talk there from his dad to kind of get it over the finish line, putting over as you brought it up. Uh, I'm not a big wrestling guy. <laughs> I kind of watched it as a kid, but kind of drifted away over the years. Uh, Same. hockey and football have kind of grabbed my interest just a little bit. Um, but, uh, among other sports, of course, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely an interesting watch. What I gathered from it, to be honest, is up until signing the actual paper, I don't think Von Miller was a hundred percent sold. And I think we discussed this in episode two a little bit, and it seemed like that in the initial video that they put out even, but man, the, the vlog that was put out, you really got the sense that, you know, if it wasn't for Josh Allen and his father and then everything else that went into it. I really don't know. It really seemed like Von Miller was giving the Rams every last chance they could. And then when it seemed like that just wasn't that reunion wasn't going to happen, he was then okay with signing with the Bills. And then once he signed the dotted line, he accepted what it was. And he was then from there potentially excited to be a Buffalo Bill. It was an interesting watch, though, for sure. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I would go out of your way to watch it if you hadn't had a chance to see it. It's on Von Miller's YouTube channel. And then one more, I guess, piece of news to discuss is Stefan Diggs. There was a comment made a couple days ago by our good friend, former Buffalo Bills general manager, Doug Whaley, on his serious NFL radio show, where Doug Whaley basically, I did, I did not hear the comments. I'm just reading them online. So if you had a chance to hear them, maybe you can correct me here. But the gist of it is, is Doug Whaley said that he thinks there's a chance that Stefan Diggs is the next big name wide receiver to get traded this offseason because the Bills don't have the appetite to pay a $30 million a year wide receiver. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week, how the Devontae Adams contract from Green Bay actually did springboard the Tyreek Hill trade into existence because the Chiefs just had no desire to go 30 APY on a wide receiver. And really, and Drew Rosenhaus said the same thing. That's Tyree Kill's agent that really it wasn't until the Devontae Adams trade happened that momentum on the Tyreek Hill trade kicked in. So from that standpoint, you could see why a guy like Stefan Diggs, who is grossly underpaid right now with two years left on his deal, would be like, hey, I'd like to get a piece of this. But where I think maybe this is more of Doug Whaley speculating. I don't, you know, who knows? Doug Whaley still may have connections in the NFL. Maybe he and Brandon Bean are really close and Brandon Bean told him this in confidence and he ruined that confidence. I kind of doubt it. My guess is Doug Whaley still has friends around the league. They're speculating. They were spitballing some ideas and Stefan Diggs came up. But what's important to note is almost any extension the Bills give Stefan Diggs right now is going to actually save them money against the cap due to how high his cap hit is in 2021. I'm sorry, in 2022, time is flying by. Um, so <laughs> it's really, it's it's not that hard for the Bills to stomach this kind of extension. Now, when you spin it forward and you look at what it could look like for 2023, 2024, um, yeah, it gets a little bit more intimidating there, especially when you start getting into the higher dollars of the Josh Allen contract. And I think that is something to at least keep in the back of your mind. But Luca, my impression of this is there's nothing to really be concerned about at this moment. Would you agree? I would agree. I I, I honestly did not hear the comments exactly or even read them for the most part. I saw some tweets at most, but um, 
I wouldn't read too much into it. This is kind of something where you have someone that is disconnected now from the league. Um, and they're just, it, it seems like a speculation, as you said, um, maybe they did have connections that are also doing the speculating for him to then have a little bit of confidence in saying what he did. But at the end of the day, trading Stefan Diggs, like all contract aside, I won't believe it until I see it kind of deal. I, I, it would be crazy to me to make that kind of decision now, unless Stefan himself kind of forced it. And it doesn't seem like we're going down that road right now. You would, I feel like at this point in time, maybe he's waiting until after the draft just to see what the bills do. I, I don't know what could possibly be going on, of course, but it seems like you would already want to kind of be getting that out there while the market is roaring hot. And at this point in time, you don't hear much of that from his front or his agent's front. So why would I believe any speculation from here on out? I think you're spot on with that. I think if for this to actually gain any kind of momentum, it would have to be chaos coming from the Stefan Diggs camp. Because from the Buffalo Bills point of view, the biggest hurdle they have had to get over the last two years is the Kansas City Chiefs. And they took a talent hit for 2022 by trading away Tyreek Hill. We talked about last week whether it was a good move or bad move for the future, and they certainly have the opportunity with all of their draft capital now to make it a very positive move. But it's really hard to envision a scenario where the Chiefs are better off in 2022 without Tyreek Hill. So why would the Bills, who are a Super Bowl contender in a Super Bowl window that just basically got a gift for 2022 from their biggest rival in the AFC, why would they then return the gift by trading away their best weapon? It doesn't make sense. And the other side of that is Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott went out of their way this offseason to talk about how important Josh Allen's opinion is in major roster decisions. They said it about the hiring of Ken Dorsey as offensive coordinator. They wanted to make it clear that this isn't a Green Bay situation where just because you're a franchise quarterback, you need to stay in your lane and all roster decisions will be held here. They talked about Josh Allen has ownership in those conversations. Obviously, they're not going to defer to him on everything. I just can't see a scenario where they essentially trade away his BFF and his best offensive playmaker by a large margin after letting Cole Beasley go. I think that would be a tough pill to swallow. Emmanuel Sanders probably isn't coming back. To me, this is just noise. I'm, I'm with you. I will believe it when I see it. One more Bills rumor we can talk about. Um, Zig Fricasi. He used to be on Buffalo Sports Radio back in the mid-2000s, a long time ago. He also is on Sirius. Man, the Sirius guys are just creating a Bills firestorm this week. Sig Fricasi said that he has heard that the Bills are trying to trade up in the draft and may even be willing to part with some veteran players to get it done. So, Luca, we're going to go through the whole defensive roster tonight. I think we can hit on some of those veteran players that might make sense, but just at a high level initial thought is trading up something that you would even be in favor of for the bills in this draft hard sell for me on that. It, it, I'm not saying that that take is a hard sell. I'm saying it would be a hard sell to convince me that that's a good idea. Um, I just don't see it. The only reason you trade up, let's say significantly. So beyond five picks when it's not the day of the draft, would be if you're trying to get a franchise player. Bingo. And obviously that would generally be for a quarterback. We're not in the market for a quarterback. So 
Now you're really limiting it. And then on top of it all, I mean, the only guy that would fit an immediate need that would demand such a crazy jump, we will probably discuss later on. So I'll leave it for that. So just off the cuff, looking at it as, yeah, they're looking to trade up, you know, say over five spots going into the draft. I, I don't see it. I don't see a reason for it. It just doesn't make sense to me. This again, similar to what we said about Doug Whaley, this feels like easy dot connecting, right? Because you have the Giants with Joe Shane and Brian Dable with their Buffalo Bills connections sitting there at picks five and seven. And enough stories have come out that the Giants would like to either move back in the first round or trade one of their picks for a pick in next year's draft, which makes a lot of sense from the Giants standpoint. I think, you know, the Giants for 2022 is going to resemble a lot of what 2017 and 2018 looked like for the Bills, even though the Bills did make the playoffs. Um, They snuck in in 2017. It's clearing the decks. It's cleaning up a lot of the mess that was made. And I think they're trying to push some of their assets into the future because a lot like when the Bills in 2017 traded their first down with Kansas City to get into the 2018 draft. And I know we can say, oh, they passed up on Mahomes. But at the time, the 2017 quarterback class was not thought of very highly. And the 2018 class at the time was considered to be one of the more loaded classes with Sam Darnold, Josh Rosen, Baker Mayfield, Lamar Jackson. It's just funny when you think about it now. And it's like, man, they didn't like the Watson Mahomes draft, but man, they had to get their Rosen and Darnold. But that's just how the draft works. <laughs> um, I I don't see it. I think it's it's just one of those things where it's like, who would want to trade up? Oh, there's a team that knows Joe Shane as if the rest of the league doesn't have his number. Um, I don't see it. Like you said, the teams that get aggressive and trade up, particularly that high, are doing it for a QB. And there's really not many examples, smart examples of teams trading up for non-quarterbacks aggressively and having it work out. Even when a team like the Saints did it a few years back for Marcus Davenport, who has developed into a very nice player. They still gave up multiple first round picks for an edge rusher. And that just really does not pan out over time as being a smart decision. So I think this is noise. It's not something I'm anticipating the bills do. It actually kind of goes against what we're hearing about this draft class, which is it's not what you would call a top heavy draft class. It's more of a decent depth in the first three or four rounds, but I don't think there's going to be a lot of motivation to trade up. So that's really the the news and notes from around the league. We talked a little bit about Devontae Parker. There was an Eagles and Saints trade where the, the Saints basically swapped ones with the Eagles this year and next year. So now the Eagles have two picks in next year's draft and the Saints have two firsts in this year's draft. And there continues to be news and rumors that guys like DK Metcalf and AJ Brown could be on the block, which makes sense because they are going into the final, final year of their deal, similar to what Tyreek Hill was. And they both are going to be looking for a very pretty payday. So, you know, that could come clear on draft day. If one of those guys gets moved, that'll be interesting to track. But Luca, it is time to dive into the defensive side of the football and look at what the Bills could do in this upcoming draft. And we are going to start with Edge because this time last year, we were sitting here fresh off of the AFC championship game to the Chiefs, where we saw the Chiefs then go on to the Super Bowl, and Patrick Mahomes had less than a half of a second to throw every single time is what it felt like. And we were sitting here, and all we heard about is, aha, there's the blueprint. That's what we need. We need a great defensive line, and that's how we're going to beat Patrick Mahomes. 
So what did the Bills do? They went out and spent their first round pick on Gregory Rousseau and their second round pick on Boogie Basham. And now we're going to talk about defensive end and if it's still a need, actually I'm not going to call it defensive end. We're going to call it edge because technically Von Miller is listed as a linebacker, but on this podcast, we're going to refer to him as edge and we're going to talk about him in this group. So currently the Bills edge group has Von Miller, Gregory Rousseau, Boogie Basham, AJ Epinesa, and Shaq Lawson. When you spin it forward to 2023, only Shaq Lawson falls off the books. He's on a one-year deal. Vaughn, Rousseau, Basham, and Epinesa are all back. So from a numbers standpoint, there's really no imminent need to add another body to that group. Luca, if the Bills do nothing at defensive end, at least nothing notable within like the first four or five rounds, what would your reaction be? Almost relieved in a way. Uh, there could be something I'm not seeing there, but at the end of the day, you've spent so many assets already now, whether it's Von Miller and money or last year's draft, as you pointed out with Groot and Basham. It, it, you got to use what you got at edge now. I mean, what else are we doing here? I can't imagine, especially in the first three, four rounds, you'd want to spend yet another asset on an edge rather than use it somewhere else where we could definitely improve either the offense, let's say, or immediate needs like depth at corner or something like we will get into later. So at the end of the day, there's almost a relief if we don't spend a high asset on an edge. You know, when I look at this edge group, the one thing that stands out to me is they, they have the high end Batman that we talked about in Von Miller. They have the three developmental guys behind them. And when I say developmental, these aren't like seventh round prospects with traits. These are first and two second round picks that were all at different point in times in their draft season mocked in the first round in Epinesa, Basham, and Rousseau. Really, the only swing spot there is that Shaq Lawson spot. And really what I would like to see the Bills do if they do anything there is a couple months go by. It's sitting here in June. Jerry Hughes still doesn't have a job. And you call him up and you're like, hey, Jerry, I know this sucks. Like you've been with us for a decade. You were our number one pass rusher. And we went out this offseason and got Von Miller. And it looks like we kicked you to the curb. But this team is ready to win a Super Bowl. And we're a better team if you're rushing opposite Von Miller than if Shaq Lawson is. So what do you say you come back for two, $3 million? The fans will love you. You'll instantly be our second best pass rusher. And let's go win a Super Bowl. To me, that's the move you make at defensive end. You could make a similar argument for Mario Addison, and maybe Mario Addison is even more realistic, but honestly, I'm at a point with Mario Addison where I would just rather see what group can develop into. And it's important to note that when it comes to the Bills edge players, including Von Miller, I think, none of these guys are going to get 70% of the snaps. Sean McDermott rotates these guys nonstop. So even if Jerry Hughes does come back, it's not going to stunt the growth of a Basham, a Rousseau, or even to a smaller extent, Epinesa. Um, There's going to be plenty of snaps to go around. And I think as far as Von Miller goes, keeping him at 60 or even below in the regular season is huge when you look at where he's at in his career. So I agree with you. I think it doesn't make sense to use an early pick on defensive end because there's just all you're doing is adding another unknown prospect into a room that has three high level prospects that you've taken in the last two years. So that doesn't make a lot of sense. 
And if you're talking about, say, like a fifth or a sixth round pick, well, at that point in the draft, you're looking for guys who can contribute on special teams. And for the most part, that's safeties, linebackers, running backs, wide receivers, cornerbacks. You're not usually seeing defensive ends running down the field covering kicks. Now, Daryl Washington, or Daryl Washington, Daryl Johnson, a few years back, was an enigma. He was athletic enough to go out there and cover kicks. And if you can find a guy like that that has some interesting traits that maybe you want to sit on your roster, your practice squad, develop, and maybe he can be a special teamer, great. But I'm with you. I don't need them to do anything at edge. They've made their big move in Vaughn. They made their big moves last year. Let's see what they can do. So I think the conversation may be somewhat similar as we look forward to the interior defensive line. The Bills current depth chart has Ed Oliver, who has two years left on his deal. Well, he has one year left on his deal, but it will be two once the Bills officially pick up his fifth year option that Brandon Bean has already said they're going to do. They went out and signed Daquan Jones to a multi-year deal. Tim Settle, Jordan Phillips, and Ellie Anku make up the defensive tackle group. And when you spin it forward to 2023, Oliver will be on his fifth-year option, and Daquan Jones will be here. Now, Settle does have a potential out if for some reason it goes horribly wrong. The Bills could get out of that contract and actually save some money. And then Jordan Phillips and Ellie Anku are on a one-year deal each. So, you know, it's it's perfectly reasonable that both of those guys could be gone. Luca, if the Bills do nothing at defensive tackle in the first, say, five rounds of the draft, your reaction would be? Exactly the same as Edge. I think you uh, pointed that out perfectly. It's it's kind of a repeating theme here. It's, all right, you've spent enough assets at this position. Please make it work. I mean, and it's not, I'm not saying that in a negative way either. It's just, it seems like on paper, you have officially gotten everything you possibly could want at that maybe you see someone that you I I don't I'm even trying to talk myself into something here and that's where I kind of need to stop because yeah you the settle signing honestly to me is the one that really kind of gave me the confidence that okay yeah they between settle Oliver Daquan Jones as you mentioned Jordan Phillips returning and then we can talk about Anku as well the that's the kind of depth there that you're like that's a well-rounded depth and then you have people even that have been around such as a zimmer that you know he got injured last year if they even wanted to bring someone in that knew what we needed to do rotate in do their job rotate out that's a guy that i would probably imagine they're going to look at more so than finding someone in the first four or five rounds of this draft so similar answer is edge you know, almost a relief in a way, but again, it's more about, I like what we have there. Why spend any sort of notable asset in this draft on that position? So I am not a hot take guy. I don't feel like this is going to be a hot take, but I I'm with you and I'm just going to talk about edge and defensive tackle basically in one large conversation here. And if you want to call us a hot take, great. That's not really my style, but The Bills don't need to spend any assets, any more assets on defensive line. They've done enough. They, in 2018, they went out and gave big money to Starla Tulele and Trent Murphy, and then they spent their third round pick on Harrison Phillips. In 2019, they spent their first round pick on Ed Oliver, a top 10 pick. 2020, after trading away the first round pick for Stefan Diggs, the Bills come into the draft and spend their top pick, a second round pick on AJ Epinesa. 
And during that free agency period, they gave out big money to Mario Addison, Addison and also brought in um, Victor Butler, I'm sorry, Vernon Butler and Quentin Jefferson. 2021, we've already talked about it, right? They spend the first two picks on Rousseau and Basham. And then in 2022, they gave out a mega buck six year, $120 million to Von Miller, and then gave a very sizable contract to Daquan Jones, basically saying, we think you're going to be an upgrade over what Harrison Phillips gave us at the nose tackle. And they also did bring in Tim Settle and then say what you want to about the Jordan Phillips Shaq Lawson contracts, which probably, you know, one year flyers shouldn't really matter that much. But this is a team that has thrown everything at the defensive line. And Eric Washington, defensive line coach, it's time to make it happen. No more assets need to be spent. I'm tired of the defensive line getting all the attention. I agree that Brandon Bean thinks that defensive line is where you want to be strong. You want to protect your quarterback. You want to be strong up front offensively and defensively. They have sunk plenty of premium assets into this defensive line. And if this line, particularly with Von Miller, and then you have Greg Rousseau and and I'll just, just look at the team that's going to be out there on the very first snap of the season. You're going to have an edge rusher in Von Miller, six years, 120 million. On the other side, you're going to have Greg Rousseau. This is if they do nothing else, by the way. They have Greg Rousseau, first round pick last year. Interior, you're going to have Ed Oliver, top 10 pick from 2019. And you have Daquan Jones at Nose, who just got a big money contract this offseason. And then the backups, the two edges on the backups are going to be Boogie Basham and AJ Epinesa, both second round picks from recent years. And then Tim Settle, who got a contract. And then you, you mix in Jordan Phillips and Shaq Lawson. That's enough. You don't need to do anything else. Defensive line has gotten plenty of attention. And if we are sitting here at the end of this year saying that the Bills still need to do more at defensive line, well, then they do need to do more at defensive line. They need to get a new defensive line coach because Eric Washington has plenty of assets given to him and it's time to make it work. I don't need the Bills to do anything on draft day, day one, day two, day three. You know, you can throw away day three if you want to, but this group is ready to roll. Um, I don't even think there's an injury with Von Miller or Oliver that could make this this defensive line look that bad. We talked about last week. Well, what if Stefan Diggs goes down? What if Deion Dawkins goes down? Those units would be in quite a bit of trouble. I think there's enough depth here where if knock on wood, Von Miller goes down, you know, you have your two or two picks from last year and Epinesa and then Jerry Hughes and, and Addison are sitting out there on the street ready to come in and help. If Ed Oliver goes down, People say Tim Settle can be that interior pass rusher. You have Jordan Phillips. They don't need to do anything else. Defensive line is fine. I don't want to see a defensive lineman come off the board for the Buffalo Bills in the first four or five rounds, and that's really where I'm at with it. Well said. I I have nothing to add there. I mean, yeah, it's just let it be. Do your thing. I mean, the funny part is if Von Miller were to go down, if we're just talking about everything on that line as a whole, you essentially just have what you had last year. You you have everything. I think if, say, Shaq Lawson is that fourth guy, you know, removing Vaughn from this, so it's Rousseau, Basham, Epinesa, and Shaq Lawson, I think your production with Lawson is almost identical that it was with Addison. I think, you know, if, God forbid, Ed Oliver or Daquan Jones or one of those guys goes down. I think the way they rotate anyways, they just try to find the best times to bring these guys in when they're fresh, that you're going to get the most you can out of them. And it's similar to what you had last year, just different names on the back. 
And at the end of the day, that's, that was still a very good team. There were some flaws there and stuff like that, but hopefully those new faces are going to correct some of those issues. And that's why they brought them in in the first place. So yeah, I'm with you a hundred percent. You know, I know we, we seem to agree a lot, but I think there's a reason for it. And that is we've already spent enough assets, move on, move forward. Let's get the other needs we have here filled. And the one injury that has hurt them over the last couple of years, and in 2020, it wasn't an injury, it was a COVID opt-out, is when Star went down, they didn't really have anybody on the roster at the time because Harrison Phillips was out to play that nose tackle role. But with Daquan Jones in that nose role, he doesn't really miss games. And then if he does, Brandon Bean has said that Tim Settle and Jordan Phillips both have versatility to rush from the three technique and play nose. I think they're fine. Um, Elianku is another really huge human who uh, was active over Vernon Butler, who was making seven figures last year for the Bills. So I think the Bills are in great shape. Let's talk about linebacker, Luca, because I think this is a position that's starting to get some steam among Bills Mafia as a position the Bills could be looking at on draft day. So what has happened this offseason? They did lose A.J. Klein, but they bring back Matt Milano and Tremaine Edmonds. Now, it's important to keep in mind that this is a nickel-based defense. So for 70-plus percent of the snaps, they're only going to have two linebackers on the field, and Matt Milano and Tremaine Edmonds are three-down players. So that's that. And then behind them, they have Andre Smith, Tyler Matikiewicz, Joe Giles-Harris, Terrell Dodson, and Marquel Lee. What's interesting about that is that entire list of players I just named off, the only one who's under contract beyond 2022 is Matt Milano. So the elephant in the room right now is the Tremaine Edmonds extension. And you can look at this from a multitude of ways. There's a segment of Bills fans who think Edmonds is trash, which that's preposterous. He's not trash. He's a good player. Is he a great player? No. Is he what you thought you were getting when you traded up in the first round of the 2018 draft? Probably not if you were under the impression that all first round picks were going to be superstars. He's not a superstar. He has been to two Pro Bowls, by the way, and he has been the centerpiece of a defense that is rated very high in the league. Um, But no, he's not a superstar. We're all in agreement there. Um, But when the Bills signed Von Miller, we even said on this podcast that if they took a big swing at an edge, like a Chandler Jones at the time or a Von Miller, uh, it could mean that they don't have enough room under the salary cap to extend Tremaine Edmonds. And we both agreed that that's something we'd be willing to live with to shore up defensive end. So Luca, I think when you look at this from just a 2022 lens, the bills are fine at linebacker. I'm not going to go out of my way to replace AJ Klein. Uh, To me, that's a very specific role uh, against run-heavy teams. And yes, he was solid depth when Edmonds or Milano missed for various reasons. But to me, when you have a franchise quarterback uh, making an exorbitant amount of money, you have to make concessions somewhere. And somewhere that you can make a concession is maybe our backup linebacker isn't on the level of what AJ Klein was. That You just kind of live with it. So I'm good with where they're at at linebacker, but that depth chart situation in 2023 is a very real concern. So I'm going to spin it this way for you. If the Bills do nothing meaningful in the draft at linebacker, 
your reaction will be? That would have me surprised. And I'll get into that in a second. I do agree with right now in a lens 2022, we like our linebackers. We agree on that 100%. But I think there's always an eye on the future. And we're not going to be able to figure out, you know, right now how we're going to be working this out. We don't know, I should say, how we're going to be working this out. But at the end of the day is it's that list you rattled off, which is essentially our entire linebacker core, that entire meeting space is not under contract after this year. You're going to need warm bodies in there after this year. And it would be nice to have them on a fixed contract that's a rookie contract of whatever variety, whether it's someone you took in the second round, whether it's someone you took in the fourth round, one of those notable picks, I would imagine they potentially use, depending on where that is, I'm not sure, because I would imagine it's going to come down to the list of individuals they like, for whatever reasons they like them, and so on and so forth, where they think they're going to fall. So you kind of are going to, it's not like I think, oh, they're going to definitely spend a second on this or a third on this. You know, they're going to, in day two, this is going to be a position they look at because they want to ensure that they have someone on a rookie contract past this season. But at the end of the day, they will need someone there that they can hopefully rely on and use this year as an opportunity to have them as a quality depth, let's say. And I'm not saying I need a quality depth linebacker. It's just something that would be nice to have in a situation like this. I think it's a it's a very fascinating dynamic. I don't hate Edmonds. I think Edmonds is a decent enough linebacker that you can rely on him as a starter. I think the uh, unfortunate label of, as you said, his first round draft pick status definitely brings him down in the eyes of many. Um, But I mean, we've seen first round picks flame, just absolutely flame out of the NFL entirely within years, not even, you know, a year or two. So to get what you have gotten out of him at the point of which you picked him, I think you should be okay with. I don't think there's should be anyone that's upset with it. The where his market value comes into play, that will be a very fascinating topic. I think after, you know, whether they're working on it currently, whether they work on it after the season, I'm not sure. Um, but you need to make sure though you have some insurance policy in there under a rookie contract, in my opinion, that will be reliably there come next season because you need something. I mean, you can't just go into a season without linebackers. That would be weird. So yeah, I, I, I imagine they will, they will use a notable asset. They, they have to almost in a weird way. It's not a have to though, for an immediate need that is on this team to go and win a championship in 2022. It's a have to with the future in mind, because you want to keep this train a rolling and you can't do it with zero linebackers or one linebacker in the, in the room. So Unless you want to, you know, sign a Dodson and be like, hey, by the way, next year you're going to be our guy, which I don't think anyone wants to see happen. You know, you got to figure something else out and bring someone else in here to do something. No, you saw the drop off from Klein to Dodson just on that Monday night game, that long Damian Harris run. Really, it was Dodson who didn't hit his gap correctly. And it was the reason the run went for as long as it did. I do think the plan probably going in is for Dodson to have that Klein role. Tyler Matikiewicz is here because of special teams. You could say the same thing about Andre Smith, although he did flash 
last preseason. Remember when he knocked out Justin Fields in the preseason game and Bears fans were mad at him. I think he's interesting. Joe Giles Harris is interesting. And then Marquell Lee is a guy they had in camp last year. But to me, I guess my question is, when you say a notable asset, are you thinking along the lines of replacing AJ Klein? Or are you thinking along the, the lines of getting a prospect in the building, getting him ready to be one of the two main guys in 2023? Or are you looking at a combination of both? Kind of a combination of both, but with the more more eyes on being one of the two guys. I don't I don't look at a guy in this draft that, you know, I'd be like, oh, he's perfect for the AJ Klein role, but all of a sudden we're gonna try to mold him into one of the two guys. I mean, because you're telling me not that AJ Klein wasn't a bad player in his prime, but you're that doesn't seem to fit what we like to do defensively. I don't think he's the guy, you know, that in his prime you would have been like, yeah, he would have been a perfect every down guy. But I do think that there is absolutely a, a need for them to get someone in the room with the eyes of, you know, next season, we're hopefully going to use you as one of the two guys because that decision will have to be made. And maybe it isn't until 2023, but that decision will have to be made of Milano and or Edmonds are going to be gone. Now, I don't think both will be gone. I think they're going to eventually land on one or the other. But one or the other will be gone. That that will happen. I would think. I I'm not I'm not 100 sold on that idea. But as I talk, as I think, and everything like that, I just see it where the business of football and the business of this league will come into play, and one of them's gone. And you need a guy to just step right in at that point and keep the train rolling, as I said before, and let keep that defense moving. And however they go about it, I'm not sure. Notable asset, one of the first three, four rounds, you got to use a pick on someone there so that you're in a nice spot right now where you have two guys in that spot and let him just sit behind, be a, potentially a good backup in that Klein role even. And then from there, just mold and just become that reliable guy every down that you are using moving forward. So it's interesting because when when you're a team that has Josh Allen, who's going to be one of the highest paid quarterbacks in the league, Deion Dawkins, one of the highest paid tackles in the league, if Stefan Diggs gets this contract for 30-ish million per year, one of the highest paid receivers in the league, you don't know what Dawson Knox's deal is going to look like, but it's not going to be cheap. Ed Oliver's due for a new deal here soon. He's going to be one of the higher paid defensive linemen in the league. You're going to have Trey White, always one of the higher paid corners in the league. You already have Von Miller, who's one of the highest paid edges in the league. Can you conceivably have a team built with two off-ball linebackers making heavy money? I would argue, as much as I like Edmonds and Milano, that off-ball linebacker just is not a pivotal position enough for winning to invest such high dollars in two of them. And when you also look at they're a base nickel team. They have high dollars in Teron Johnson, who is essentially their quote unquote third linebacker because he's essentially replacing what would otherwise be a Sam linebacker on the field. I think it's very unlikely that going into 2023, Edmonds and Milano are here. Where I disagree with what I see on social media is I don't view Edmonds as the odd man out. I know it's easy to connect the dots of his contract is coming up. 
He's been a quote unquote disappointment because he hasn't turned into a superstar that we thought we were getting. And Milano's a fan favorite. He's solid, but they spent a fifth round pick on Milano. They trade up in the first round to get Tremaine Edmonds. Matt Milano is going to be 28 going into next year. Tremaine Edmonds is going to be 24. Um, Matt Milano is a weak side linebacker, does great with his role. Tremaine Edmonds calls the plays in the defensive huddle. They have been grooming him for years to be their Luke Keekley. Is he Luke Keekley? No, but he's not the scrub that a lot of Bills Mafia wants to make him out to be. When you look at Matt Milano's deal, it was written as such that it got heavy at the time when Edmonds extension was going to be due. And there is a very, very easy out before 2023 for the bills to get out from under Milano, extend Edmonds and have very, very painless money as far as moving on from Milano. Beyond that, 2023 and 2024, Milano's cap hits are $13 million. Now, you can easily go in there and extend him, rework that contract. There's a million different hoops you can jump through to make that number more palatable. But to me, this organization, whether you think Milano's better or Edmonds is better, that's your opinion. You can have whatever opinion you want. And I think an argument could be made that right now, sitting here today, Matt Milano is a better player than Tremaine Edmonds. This team, in my opinion, from reading the tea leaves, values Tremaine Edmonds, the role he plays, the player he is, the investment they've made in him. They value him more. And if they're going to give one of them the deuces and say it's time to go, I think it's going to be the 28-year-old Milano and not the franchise middle linebacker that they trade up to get that they've been grooming to be the quarterback of their defense who's made two Pro Bowls and who was very injured in much of 2020 when a lot of Bills fans jumped off his bandwagon. I think Milano moves on. And I think Edmonds will be the one here. But that is a conversation for a different day because that's guesswork about the future. For the draft, I'm not a huge fan of spinning a premium asset on linebacker. And when I say premium, I guess I would say first and second round pick because to me, your first two picks need to be able to help you almost immediately. And this is a team that has a championship window. And barring an injury to Edmonds or Milano, there's just not a path to a linebacker coming on the field and really making that impact. So in my opinion, the best way for the Bills to attack a linebacker, if they are going into it with the thought process of Edmonds or Milano are going to be gone next year, we're going to need to have a starting linebacker in-house, spend a third or a fourth round pick on a guy who can be your backup if one of those guys goes down. You can groom him for a year, and then by the time next offseason gets here, you have enough information on him from a year of him being in your building, being around him, around your coaching staff. Is he ready to be the guy, or do we need to attack next free agency or next draft, probably more likely for the cost control, a little more aggressively? I don't know that I'll ever be in favor again of the Bill spending a first-round pick on an off-ball linebacker. I don't think that's something that really is good asset management. Even if Tremaine Edmonds has tur- had turned into Darius Leonard or something like that, I still think it's questionable asset management for an off-ball linebacker. So I would, I probably won't be sitting here next year endorsing that. But I think you take a third or a fourth round linebacker this year, see if he can handle the job by 2023 with a year of evaluation. If he can't, you get a little more aggressive next year, maybe bump it up to a second or a third round linebacker 
And then you have both of those guys in-house and hopefully one of them can be competent enough at a position that I don't think is one of the five, six, seven most important positions on the defensive side of the ball. So Luca, I just said a lot. Uh, We both have kind of said where we think the Bills will land as far as linebackers in this draft. Unlike defensive line, where we were both steadfast against the Bills doing much of anything, we're both on board with the Bills taking a at least a medium-sized swing in this draft. So I'm going to send it to you. Are there any names you like? So before we do that, I actually want to kick a question to you. I'll kick it right back. The one question I have is, because I've seen some random mocks out there where you have an individual falling to the 20s that I honestly cannot believe I am seeing. So if a Nicobe Dean, the linebacker out of Georgia, were to fall, to us at 25. How are you feeling? I'm not trying to be snarky. I would hope he falls to 26. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> I think he's an excellent player. I think he's terrific. I think he is Matt Milano on steroids. He's an NFL will. I don't think he's a Mike. He's excellent in coverage and he checks every box that the bills look for in their linebackers. But I still don't think that's good asset management to spend that kind of premium on a linebacker. If the Bills spend a first round pick on a linebacker, I feel like that would be more of a sign that Edmonds is moving on. Maybe that's because they've gotten the indication that Edmonds is going to want that Darius Leonard money. I don't know. Maybe they've talked themselves into he's just average and they want him to be more than that. I don't know, but I would be surprised. How would you feel? That I would, I I think I would think about it a little bit more because I think being uh, how you feel he is in the NFL or how he will work out in the NFL, I think that's a a pretty good one. I think Milano on steroids is a great comparison, but I think that would be something that it would almost be a shock to see someone like that sitting there at 25 and then you really start going, well, I mean, this, you want to talk about the ultimate insurance deal. So say they were to say, you know, and this is all speculation, but say they sign Stefan Gilmore and you're going into this draft already knowing you have Stefan Gilmore. Well, all of a sudden that need that a lot of us are seeing and we'll discuss in a little bit shortly here with corner, that's kind of, you know, tamed itself for the immediate future. So now you're sitting there with a very good luxury of all your holes are seemingly filled. So, yeah. Uh, so, you know, now you have this premier inside linebacker of the draft seen by some at least, sitting there for the taking that you can ultimately mold into that guy you want it to be. And you have this conundrum here where Edmonds on his fifth year, Milano out in a year afterwards. I mean, you could realistically almost strong arm whoever you want and be like, we don't have to pay you. We we don't need to pay you moving forward. I don't know what the contract situation looks like with Edmonds, but it's almost like you get that luxury. Now you get that ability to be like, we don't have to do it. We have this guy now that we think we can just move forward with in the exact role we wanted you to be in. So it's just an interesting thought I had. I'm just randomly on the top of my head. Um, but going into names and kind of jump back out of that real quick, because it's a crazy, you know, speculation to consider. Um, two guys that come to mind, uh, when it comes to say outside of the first two, uh, rounds would be, you know, one is a Leo and I'm going to probably say this name wrong. Cause it's probably a hard age, but Chanel, it basically, or Chinel 
out of Wisconsin. Um, he is the AJ Klein replacement, and I know that's what you mentioned, but he's the AJ Klein replacement you're probably spending a fourth or fifth round pick on. So it'd be a very interesting point. He is a absolute block of a human being. He is just the classic Wisconsin linebacker. He, he, you know, and you need that guy in the Big Ten who isn't going to move when anyone comes, you know, around the corner or up the middle to block you to let their running back get to the next level. He's just going to stuff whatever you need. Now, his coverage lacks because of that, because that's pretty much all he offers you right out the gate and in immediate needs. But if, you know, on day, you know, day three in the fourth round, fifth round, you, you feel pretty good about your first two days and you're sitting there going, hmm, we could really use that kind of downhill cinder block linebacker that could help us in the run. That would be an interesting scenario or a situation where a player like that's available. I like that. And then on the polar opposite, just another name real quick, is a Channing Tyndall. He, he is the opposite. He is just a somewhat undersized uh, linebacker I've seen by some by the description he is six foot two two thirty I don't view that as undersized to me personally that's still a pretty big human being but uh he ran a four four seven he he flies around the field you can definitely see him he's just not someone that a lot of people think will be able to hold his ground he he's gonna move be moved easily at this point in time you can always build people when you come to the NFL, you're generally always smaller than the average, you know, guy. There are obviously situations where you're not, but if you're being picked in, you know, the early day three situation or late day two, you know, you're probably a little on the undersized point and you can just, they, there are regimens that they can put in place to build you up. And this guy flies around. And if you really wanted to add speed to the linebacker position and get it at value, that's definitely a name that I think, you know, they could have an eye on and be like you know if he's sitting there available say say even late day two so we we've already made our pick in the third round and all of a sudden they see him still sitting there with a few picks to go to end day two but they don't think that he's going to make it to the fourth round maybe they maybe they make a move just to get a guy like that you know or someone in the linebacker world in general that they feel can fit a need as a depth role player. And then someone like that with that kind of speed also could be helpful and useful in special teams where now you can be a little more flexible in that world as well. Obviously that's normally filled for fifth, sixth, seventh round guys, but just to get them on the field, get them moving around and stuff like that, just because you have an athletic being that would be fun to play with. So those are two guys I kind of look at when I look at the later round stuff, um, just because at the end of the day, I'm more with you than against you when it comes to the early, early stuff, the first, second round guys. I'm not, I'm not really looking at them because I just don't feel that that would really be anything that anyone in the front office is going to be looking at. And so, you know, to wrap it up, I mean, those, those are really the two names I look at and just, there are other guys similar to them in this draft. It's just, those are two guys that stood out and, you know, were like, so I think Leo, Leo Chanel kind of I've seen him bounced around all over the place so he could end up in the second round or third round I don't think they would take him in that because like I said that's an AJ Klein kind of guy and that's just not what we're looking for but if he were to fall you know a little bit more that could be a guy you just fill a need for you know and has a role player and then the Channing Tyndall he's just a fun fun guy that maybe you can mold into something better 
And the Tyndall point I like a lot because of what you mentioned about the third round. They did a similar thing with Dawson Knox back in 2019, where they had already taken their first three picks. And then the tight end board was starting to get thinned out and they traded up and took Dawson Knox. I think this particular Bills team, having seen draft picks last year, get sniped off their practice squad because they just couldn't fit them on their 53. And then guys like Jake Fromm, even from the previous year's draft, uh, Richard Wild Goose, Jack Anderson, all got sniped by different teams. I could see the Bills combining late day three assets to try to make more aggressive moves on day two and day three to, to pinpoint guys they really like. Normally, I'm not a fan of trading up in the draft. And obviously, like we mentioned earlier, I'm not a fan of doing it in the first round where you're making an aggressive trade up unless it's just this very special situation. But for a team like the Bills that is probably not going to be able to get seven or eight rookies on their roster, I have no problem with packaging a five and a seven to turn your four into a late three to get a linebacker like that. So a couple names I like, you know, obviously Devin Lloyd and N'Kobe Dean are not going to be what I think are going to be within reach for the Bills. And I wouldn't really want the Bills to make that pick, even if those guys fell to him. Um, Christian Harris is a name I like a lot. I think he offers a lot of the similar uh, style play of a N'Kobe Dean, good coverage, you know, a good ball of clay to work with. One guy I've really taken a liking to is Quay Walker. He is hmm. a ridiculous athlete. He's really good in coverage. There's just a question about his instincts, but I hesitate to say his name because I was listening to first draft with Todd McShay, Field Yates, and Mel Kuyper. And they were mentioning that his name is actually getting a lot of steam for going in the first round. So uh, that's a little too rich for me. I'm wondering if hopefully that's not the bills that are going to be the team that takes him at the end of the first round. But I really like that third round, fourth round idea where you look for an athlete. I'm not as worried about replacing the AJ Klein role. Although I do think if you just look at it for 2022, if you can find somebody, you know, if you can find somebody on the third day to be that AJ Klein role and also be a special teams player. Great day three picks. If they contribute at all, fantastic. You know, we all love Kyle Williams, but the reality is most of these guys taken on day three, if they can just find a role on your team and make it through their entire first contract, it's a win. Um, and like you mentioned before, when we were going over the linebacker death chart, they just need bodies next year. So that third, fourth round pick, whatever it is, is going to be cost controlled for the next four years. That's one less player you have to add to the mix. That is a pretty empty room going into 2023 as it sits right now. It looks like we're on the same page with linebacker. Neither one of us are overly enthused about the idea of the Bills taking a linebacker in the first or second round. I guess I should say it this way, though. We're not on board with it, but... That doesn't really matter. Do you think the Bills are going to take a linebacker in the first or second round, or do you think that they're pretty much aligned with what we're thinking? I'll say mm, 80% in line with it. I mean, you never know. Obviously, there's always the uncertainty. We are not the individuals that are in charge of it. So there's always the, well, we don't know. But at the, there is a chance. I think, I think the future prospect or emptiness that is the linebacker locker room or team meeting room going forward definitely adds question mark to the position in this draft. And it makes it a little bit like 
well, maybe they could. I mean, they could flirt around with that cost controlled, you know, idea and want a guy like that in there. It, it, I, I, I'm, I'm talking myself into it. So I think, yeah, 80, 85%, they're on page with what we're kind of thinking here. Because as I just sat there rambling a little bit, yeah, it's you almost have to talk yourself into it more than you need to talk yourself out of it for sure. For me, I think it, for it to be early, it would have to be just tremendous value where, you know, a situation like you said, um, Nicobe Dean falls to you at 25, you had a top 10 grade on him and you're just like, well, this is too good for us to pass up. Same thing in the second round. Maybe you have a, a mid first round grade on somebody and they fall to you in the back half of the second round. Other than that, it just, I, I could see this team, if all things are being equal, feeding the interior offensive line, feeding a cornerback, you know, they got to do something at wide receiver, I think. Um, there is a need to maybe add a tight end. I don't think maybe that high. Um, there's going to be probably a running back at it. So I think there's other things this team would need to do before they start worrying about the 2023 starter at linebacker. Um, so yeah, so we've covered some positions that we don't believe the bills are going to be in play for in the first round, barring a surprise. Um, maybe linebacker is kind of a wild card in the first round, but we both kind of doubt it. Luke, it's time to talk about a position that I think uh, we both think is very much in play for the first round. And I don't want to speak for you, but if it doesn't get picked in the first round, we might need to have a little bit of a therapy session. Let's talk about the cornerback position. Uh, the Bills right now at cornerback on their depth chart have Tredavious White and Dane Jackson as their two starting boundary corners. And Teron Johnson is their nickel cornerback with Cam Lewis, Nick McLeod, Elijah Griffin as the depth. The good news, only Cam Lewis is in the last year of his deal, so everybody else will be here next year. The bad news is outside of Trey White and Teron Johnson, we don't really know what we have with those guys. Dane Jackson played some meaningful snaps last year, but it was it was hit or miss. Um, Cam Lewis really hasn't gotten on the field outside of a little bit in 2020. Nick McLeod, Elijah Griffin were both rookies last year. And then Saran Neal is just basically a special teamer that fills in in a break glass in case of emergency situation at cornerback. Uh, the other bad news, and this is really bad news depending on your perspective, Trey White tore his ACL on Thanksgiving. And we have sitting here today, no idea when he's going to be ready to play football again. And when he is ready to play football again, we have no idea how long it's going to take for him to ramp back up to that Trey White level we have come to know and expect. So, Luca, I'm going to ask you, first of all, because I, I know where you're going to fall on this. So I'm just going to say, if the Bills don't spend a meaningful pick, meaningful being day one or day two on a cornerback, your reaction will be pissed off. And I'll go even further. If this first round, and I talked myself, I know we last week we talked about a wide receiver potentially in the first round at pick 25. I know we talked about some elite talent that is there. And I, at the end of the day, I'm not the one making the pick, but I'll, I'll be honest, thinking it over, mulling it over, just talking to myself, talking to other people, things like that. If we do not take a corner with our 21st pick, I am beyond pissed off. That is the only thing on this team that is an immediate need because yes, 
you can answer it with, let's go out and sign a Stefan Gilmore. I don't know how you're making that money work. Like I said before, but okay, get a veteran in there. But I mean, you're still, you're still walking into the beginning part of your season, four, six games, whatever it ends up being with those guys at your perimeter as, oh my goodness. I just, Dane Jackson, Cam Lewis, those cannot be regular starters on this team. They can't. I, I don't care. I, I have, I know we haven't seen a ton from them, but I've almost seen enough to be comfortable enough in saying I don't want to see them out there. They cannot be reliable guys. They just can't. So while Trey is out, we need someone that's at least up and coming and promising or something that can maybe provide this defense with notable snaps regularly. And you're not going to find that. I mean, maybe you find that in the second round and hopefully they do. And we can get into that later. But Pick 25, for all intents and purposes, should 98% be ready to take a corner. Best available, whatever's on their board, because that is the one thing that you look at this roster, you look at what they're going to be able to do early in the season especially, and that is where you go, well, shit, how the hell are we covering anyone? Because you, you really don't have an answer for that. You, you just don't. I mean, no Trey, and you just... I. You need to take a corner. You just, if God forbid, all of a sudden the top seven corners are gone off the board. That's the scenario where you go, well, okay, because the only guy that's there right now is a Marcus Jones who ran a sub 440, but he's also five foot eight. He's not exactly a guy you look at perimeter wise. And I don't think anyone is viewing him as a perimeter guy. You know, if that's your guy sitting there, you're not exactly looking at him for that because he also has like a second to third round grade to him. So if there was just all of a sudden this explosion for corners taken in the first round that we are not seeing right now in mocks or anything, you know, out there in the Twitterverse, you know, then I understand. But other than that, you're taking a damn corner here. And there is just numerous names out there with athletic profiles and just abilities that you can at least hope. Maybe it's rough early on and in the early going. But that's okay because at least you're giving them meaningful snaps that they will mold into an unbelievable, hopefully, corner in the NFL to be opposite of Trey. Well, as your friend, I don't want you to be pissed off. So let's talk through this together. Let me see if I can uh, feel out how you're thinking here. Let's play a hypothetical game that unfortunately is not the world we're living in. But hypothetically, if there was no Trey White ACL injury and this was their wide receiver or their cornerback depth chart as is. Would cornerback still be a, if they don't take a cornerback at pick 25, I'm pissed off, or would it be more of a, that's a need, Dane Jackson is probably a problem, but if they don't get a meaningful cornerback here, we can probably win with this secondary. I would say the latter. I think Trey being available day one would definitely change my mind, and I understand the mindset of, well, you just need to get into the dance anyways. But there's a real good opportunity here in front of us where something that we haven't had and we flirted with the idea of last season and even the year before with the ability to get a one seed and you're sitting in a division now that got a little more tough with Tyreek Hill coming in. But ultimately, we are seen as the division favorite and it's the Patriots and the Dolphins are there and they'll be there. But I don't think there's viewed as much more than a pain in the ass rather than a full on threat. Um, at this point in time, and then the Chiefs have gotten worse, and then everyone around them in their division got better, and they're just going to beat up on each other, you would think. So the AFC West is now just kicking each other's ass. And th- I mean, the 
the AFC South, uh, I have no idea what to expect out of it. None of those teams really, I mean, the Colts are obviously the Colts, but they don't really have receiving weapons. So are they going to be able to blow the doors off of everyone? I don't think so. They're going to have to just ground and pound everyone just like their division foe, Tennessee. So it's a really interesting scenario where every game still counts and you really want to win and maximize the amount of wins you can get in the regular season to hopefully be at that one spot. And if the one thing you really need is a corner to do that with Trey being out, you got to do it. You got to take advantage of it. Now, if Trey as going back to it to round it up here, if Trey was here, I'd probably say I'm 65% still wanting a corner because I still think that you really don't want to you don't want to go in there with Cam Lewis and Dane Jackson, but can you get by? Sure, but I don't want to get by. That's not that's not where I'm at. And I'm getting a little heated on this, but I'm not at the point where I can tell. Yeah, I I don't want to just accept getting by. Yeah. I want to win a fucking championship. And god damn it, draft a fucking corner to do it. Like it's just one of those things that's like it's almost where it's painstaking painstakingly obvious that that is the one thing that you really should swing at. And unless incredible value is sitting there, otherwise you do it like that's why they're, that's where the 65% comes in. And now that your best guy at that position is also out for the first four to six, who knows? I mean, maybe what if his recovery doesn't go well? Yeah. God forbid. I mean, let's hope not, but what if his recovery doesn't go well? And all of a sudden we're sitting here eight weeks without him. I mean, holy shit. <laughs> we can't be playing half a year with Dane Jackson and Cam Lewis. Or what, that can't happen. What if he just is not himself next year? And he's yeah, that exactly. Average. I mean, you can't even assume that he comes out the gate just guns a blazing and working fine. So yeah, what if he comes back and he's just never the? I mean, let's just say for next year he's not the same for the year. Let's just say that I don't want to say is the rest of his career because that would just be criminal to him. But let's say next year. He's not the same. I mean, you have to make sure you have insurance there. Then you cannot go in with Dane Jackson, Cam Lewis, anyone else on this roster right now. Taron is going to be there in the slot. We've talked about that already. He's essentially your third linebacker. He is. He might even be the most important piece to this defense just because of what they like to run package wise and what he does as a job. I mean, it, it's definitely at least debatable because of how important he is there you have to get insurance in that place in that position as an outside corner to help just in case Trey is you know I mean you have to help when Trey's not there and then just in case when he comes back he's not really a hundred percent all I mean God forbid he's not a hundred percent all year you want someone else there that's reliable and this is all with the assumption that they're just gonna sit there with that again if they go out and get a veteran corner that obviously changes things but does that change enough for me to change my stance on this? Hell no. Absolutely not. Draft. This is a very, very intriguing draft when it comes to corner. There's very good depth in this draft when it comes to corner. So please take advantage of it and take a guy at your pick. And obviously, if they move up, like we discussed earlier in the podcast and stuff, that could change everything. But please take a guy in this draft that you like and are hopeful that he will walk in day one and make some sort of impact for this team that hopefully is going to be there on the last game of the season in February. And we're going to get into some of those names here as we move along, but I I don't want to get off this Trey White point just yet because last week we talked about, okay, the Bills are in a unique spot where they, they don't have a lot of pressing immediate needs. 
So when they're attacking the draft and they're attacking free agency, they almost need to look at it from a standpoint of what injury could take place that could tank our season. And that's where last week we landed on tackle where, you know, you love what you have with Dawkins. You love what you saw from Brown and what he can potentially become. But right now, Tommy Doyle is your third tackle on the roster. And God forbid if Dawkins or Brown go down for an extended period of time, unless uh, unless they add a veteran, Tommy Doyle is going to be relied on to play very meaningful snaps at a very important position. And that could be a season tanker if, if, you know, it's a year long injury. We landed on a similar spot with Stefan Diggs at wide receiver one and what this wide receiver group would look like as it's currently constructed if Stefan Diggs misses meaningful time. I think if the Trey White injury that is in existence wasn't a thing, this conversation would still be along the lines of Deion Dawkins and Stefan Diggs, where you're playing with fire if Trey White goes down because you are one injury away from your starting cornerbacks being Dane Jackson and Cam Lewis. So the fact that we go into this season having a huge question mark on Trey White's early season availability definitely ramps that up. I will play a little bit of devil's advocate, though, because to me, the draft is not about the first month of the season, the first two months of the season, the draft is supposed to be about the next five years, next 10 years of your football program. And I fully respect everything we've talked about with the bills being in a win now mode. And I am a hundred percent aligned with you on 2022 is very much going to be about the path is there to get the one seed. Let's make sure all of our ducks in a row. So we don't have anything that we could have anticipated pop up, pop up that costs us the one seed. And from that respect, I understand the need to be aggressive at finding a cornerback, because if you're playing two months, just say without Trey White, it stands to reason that that could show up in one or two games and maybe you lose a close game that otherwise wouldn't have been close if you didn't have a liability at starting cornerback. And that's all it takes to be playing on wildcard weekend as opposed to sitting out on wildcard weekend, or that's all it takes to go to Arrowhead as opposed to having the Chiefs come to Buffalo, which is uber important. So I'm not just on the get in and see what happens train, but I don't necessarily think it's smart business to look at it and say, we have an injury at cornerback. So that's why we need to make this our first round pick. If the bill's position on cornerback is we haven't been able to be as flexible on defense because Uh, With Trey White and Levi Wallace or Trey White and Dane Jackson, we just don't have a good athlete, a good enough athlete opposite Trey to run enough man coverage and mix up our defense or to throw in aggressive blitzes where we trust our cornerbacks on the back end to play coverage. I would stand up. I would applaud. I would shout from the heavens. Yes, that's what this defense needs. It needs another guy that erases a receiver. And those guys are hard to come by, but just the ability to man up on the outside and be even more aggressive with your blitzes, things that Hyde and Poyer are both fantastic at. I think Edmonds could excel at that. And to really give Leslie Frazier and Sean McDermott more bullets in their gun as far as what they can fire at the opposing offense. If that's their motivation to get a strong 1A and 1B at cornerback, sign me up, write it down in blood, give me a cornerback at 25. If the conversation is we don't know what's happening with Trey White and we need a starter for September, I'm a little bit uneasy with that because to me, that's kind of short-sighted. If you're okay with Dane Jackson and Trey White being your starters, 
and the only reason you're taking a cornerback is because Trey White could miss a month, well, then I think you just find a way to survive a month. But my the only reason I'm bringing this up, Luca, is because I thought the last two drafts there was a glaring need at cornerback too. I I always liked Levi Wallace, but to me he was always that guy that never made you feel good enough about that you weren't trying to upgrade. And when I looked at this defense, I always thought even more sir, more so than edge rusher, I thought the thing this defense needed was another cornerback that could man up, play man on man, and give Sean McDermott and Frazier flexibility to get very creative with their coverages and their schemes. And the Bills had let multiple drafts go by with multiple solid cornerback prospects falling to them and didn't take a single one of them. And for the longest time, it made, made me think, they just don't value cornerback two as much as we want them to. They have their stud and tray. They have their two great safeties. They have their nickel and they're going to trust themselves to coach up the other guy. I will say Brandon Bean has said multiple times, the way you lose the last game of your season will usually tell you what the weakness is on your team. And in his end of season press conference, the one thing he kept saying is we need to get faster. We need to get faster. And the image that's in my brain is not the the drive that led the 13 seconds drive. It was the Chiefs drive before that. So Allen hits digs with about, I want to say, a minute and a half left. And that's when the Chiefs go down and score a touchdown. Boom. Tyreek Hill crosser over the middle, outruns Levi Wallace. Tyreek Hill is going to outrun a lot of people now. So it's not like this isn't a Levi Wallace issue, but Tyreek Hill was free three yards off the line and he was just gone. And the image of Levi Wallace chasing him and just never getting close as he walks into the end zone. I think maybe that was the straw that broke the camel's back as far as we're not going to bring back Levi Wallace. And maybe that motivated Brandon Bean and McDermott to be aggressive at cornerback. So I think they're going to be aggressive at cornerback. I'm I'm not convinced that they're just going to take the best cornerback available at pick 25. I do think like you there are, I'm just looking at my list right now, one, two, three, four, five, six guys that I would be very comfortable with taking at pick 25. Now, look, that that includes Sauce Gardner. If he's there at pick 25, like you and I are both going to pass out. <laughs> but there's six, there's six cornerbacks, I think, that if they fall to the Bills at pick 25 would be a just hand in the card, you're good to go. So let's start talking about some of those names because this is a deep cornerback draft. Sauce Gardner is not somebody the Bills are going to get at pick 25. If they wanted him, that would be a scenario where they had to make an aggressive trade up. Um, you know, I don't know how much we want to necessarily talk about him, but he is the total package. Huge wingspan. Uh, doesn't have that elite, elite speed, but just great press technique. He's 6'3", but he's also a solid run defender. And his 6'3 is different. Chris Sims even described this where a lot of times with these longer cornerbacks, they tend to be a little bit less agile and they can give up some intermediate routes to the shifty receivers. Not an issue with this kid. That's why he's going to be a premium pick, probably a top 10 pick and not somebody that the Bills fans need to spend a whole lot of time fantasizing about. So beyond Sauce Gardner, Luca, who are some guys that really get you excited when you think about lining up in a Buffalo Bills uniform? There's a lot of them. I think uh, you said you had six on your list. My list is at 25, I should say. My list is similar. I mean, there's a lot of them. I, I'll, I'll finish with the most controversial, it seems like, in the media world. But um, 
both the Washington corners at 25. Now, Kyler Gordon um, is one that I think falls to the second. So I don't see him as a first round and I don't think that they would be picking him at pick 25, but he's a guy that I've learned to kind of love with my own personal viewing of the PAC 12. He's very versatile. He's athletic build. He's not the speed though. And I think that's where he ultimately for all teams will not fall to that first round, but his counterpart just across the way there, Trent McDuffie, Big fan. Love the guy. I think, you know, he runs basically a 4-4. It's, I think he clocked in just above that. But he is the perfect size for a corner when it comes to just being that five foot eleven, six foot range. He has ability in the open space to just take away receivers, keep up with them, everything like that. I just love everything about him. I think he shuts down in a interesting way of his own i think he'd be a great just plug and play get him into the system let him grow at the nfl level and he's gonna soar kind of deal one that's maybe a little more of a uh let's say raw uh first round prospect be and i think because of that i've seen him kind of go anywhere in between the late first to the even the mid second is kair elam he is the definition of size and speed in this draft he's sub four four 40, I should say. He is six foot two. He's got length, you know, quickness, agility, everything you want. It's just he does let up a lot of big plays. Uh, there is some question marks on how much he even cares. And I yeah. mean, you kind of at the end of the day want someone that cares. But if you have a guy with all the tools again, you hope that you can bring him in then and just get him to get the most out of him. And, and this is definitely a place with McDermott that you see him get a lot out of corners over the years. I think we brought this up in a podcast past, but definitely someone to keep an eye on because then maybe McDermott can really get him focused and centered. And I lead that into my final guy here. And that is the seemingly controversial, although I'm very confused on it, Derek Stingley. Mm -hmm. And Derek Stingley is an interesting one because Derek Stingley I thought going into this draft. So during the college football season, going into this draft, he was going to be a top 10 guy. I mean, I think he was basically projected to be the number one corner in this draft. Sauce Gardner, of course, had an unbelievable year and show exactly why he will be the first corner undoubtedly taken in this draft. He will be, I mean, he could be even top five, probably. I mean, most certainly top 10, but Derek Stingley is just another just absolute athletic freak at corner. And his freshman year at LSU, of course, showed everything he was capable of. And then he kind of diminished in production since then. And that's where I think a lot of red flags have come up with Derek Stingley. Derek Stingley is a prospect that I highlight, circle, put on my board. He falls to 25 and there's not someone else you're absolutely in love with. That is the guy you want McDermott to put his arm around and be like, I'm going to make you everything you could possibly be. I'm going to turn you into the beast that you were, if not better. And I say that if not, it should be, should be better because now you're in the NFL. Now you're with the big boys. Now you're even more athletically gifted and talented and you'll be smarter than ever because you'll have this genius in McDermott teaching you everything along the way with that defensive staff. And Derek Stingley's a guy that I look at. He might not have as much of an athletic attribute similar to Josh Norman, but he would be a, an individual that I would look at and look at the success of Josh Norman with McDermott in Carolina and be like, we can do that to you. Now, how much do you care? 
And hopefully he comes into that room, comes into the organization, sees exactly what's around and sees the championship caliber team that is around him. And all of a sudden instills that, well, shit, I'm a a boy among among men. Oh man, I butchered that. But I am a boy among men and I want to win here and I'm going to do everything I can to. And I'm going to sit here and listen to McDermott and get the most out of myself in this team. And I love him. I, I don't care for all the hate on him. I, I heard Chris Sims absolutely bash him this morning, essentially, on his podcast. And I get it in a way, and it's interesting to me, and it's concerning to me. But at the end of the day, man, I, I just fall in love with athletic freaks. We talked about it at the wide receiver position last week, and I'm doing it again. But I love athletic things because that is the one thing you cannot teach. You cannot teach a person to be an elite athlete. You have to be it. And then everything around that is just up to them if they want to learn it or not. And Derek Stingley, to me, is just an unbelievable athlete at the corner position that somehow may end up falling on his way to 25. And if he is sitting there, I would be overjoyed to take a shot on someone like him. And I'll wrap it up real quick, bringing it back to something. I wanted to bring it back to the corner number two point in the years of watching it not get taken. And this is where I'm going to kind of pull from a little bit of a Cardinals fandom. And I wanted to make this point. It reminds me of the 2010s Cardinals with Patrick Peterson. And every year you'd sit there and be like, man, we, we are really good defense. We could just use a corner too, opposite of Pat Pete. We could just use a guy to really ramp up this defense and they would do great things with absolute i mean you got a little bit out of cromartie antonio cromartie one year you got a little bit out of all these other veterans some other years and they were you know top five defenses but they could never get over the finish line and what killed them at the end of the day was that i mean aaron Rodgers and all these other players would just not even bother throwing pat pete's way and just crush you on the opposite side and that's what i mean every year you'd go into a draft maybe this is the year they finally address corner number two and we wasted Pat Pete's entire career in the desert by not giving him a Robin to his Batman. And that's ultimately what I look at here. And I just pray that this Bills team, unless some incredible value in another position falls to that point, they look at, and I think we are, you know, you mentioned it already. The last game of the season, you saw Levi Wallace get torched by Reek, which everyone does, but you saw that you saw him be that corner two that you're like, you're just not good enough to be that guy. And you let him walk. Hopefully that was the sign that was like, yeah, we're going to try and get that corner two, and not make the mistake of teams like those 2010s Cardinals that were really good defenses. They just could never get over the line because you were getting shredded against that corner two. So yeah, Derek Stingley's my guy, to be honest. I'm I'm gonna die on that ship. If he doesn't work out, whatever. I you'll look at it. I mean, I think he got clocked four two nine. I think I have written down it might have been a little bit slower than that oh, at the combine. I didn't see that. I thought he ran a four five. Yeah, it could have been a four five at the draft, but I've seen him clocked at pro days and other things like that. Four two nine. He does look very fast on tape. I mean, he is just, I love Derek Stingley. I love, love him. I think everything athletically about him is phenomenal. Him and Kyir Elam, I think Kyir Elam is also another one of those that the classic fits the athletic mold, just how much does he care? Yeah. And he gets burned a lot. It's like those two guys, I just love the athleticism in, in them. And then wrapping it all up, Trent McDuffie is also another pick. 
that I, I see and I go, I am very, very happy with it. I think he's the one that everyone would be most comfortable with out of those three by far. Because again, I see McDuffie always ending up in the late first round of mocks, let's say. And then, you know, these other two guys, I mean, Stingley, I've seen anywhere from the, you know, bottom half of the first half to all the way to the back of the first round. And then Kyrie Elam, I've seen him drop in the mid second round, you know, so that tells you that a lot of the media and stuff is just not sure how to feel about those guys. Whereas Trent McDuffie seems to be slotted in right around where we're at, if not a little bit before us. And I, I love him as a talent as well. It's just, I am enamored with athleticism and that it's so hard. It's, it's almost like the, uh, not to pull out of a random thing. It's almost like the Tavon Austin, West Virginia highlight reel. It's so hard to get out of your head. Mm -hmm. You look at Derek Stingley's freshman year and you are just enamored with it and you see the highs and you see the ceiling and you're like, holy shit, can we please get that on this team? Now, obviously that was two, two, three years ago at the point of the start of the season, three years ago. I mean, it, it, he's still just an athletic freak that I would love to have there. So the freshman year tape, the reason this is a conversation about Stingley at 25 is because the two years after that have been so head scratchingly worse. And had he put another season or two, like his freshman year on tape, he would not be in conversation for the bills at 25. This would be a, is this a top five pick in the draft? I think he'd probably be going over sauce Gardner. That's how good his tape was. Chris Sims said that it was the best quarterback tape he's seen. I don't want to say ever, but it was in that conversation for this might be the best prospect I've seen in a long time, especially considering he was a freshman. So you have to kind of drill into what happened. Why did it go off the rails? So Chris Sims had said that one, He's watching him and you don't ever want to say this about somebody that you haven't had a conversation with. And it's probably unfair to say this about somebody you haven't had a conversation with, but his first thought was, okay, does he love football? Because he sees Derek Steenley not being a willing tackler, almost just running himself out of the play. Now, look, none of us are naive. We're all adults here. Maybe there's kids listening, but let's just assume that for the most part, even if there's kids listening, they understand that college athletes for the most part until recently do not get paid. And it's not a new thing for college athletes to protect themselves before they get their payday in the draft, especially someone like a Derek Stingley, who since his freshman year was probably told he's going to be a very high first round pick as long as he doesn't get hurt. So if that's why he's avoiding tackles and making business decisions, you can wrap your head around it. But I don't think that's going to be somebody that Sean McDermott's going to be drawn to. Um, so I want to have a larger conversation about the bills and their draft strategies before I start diving into some of these prospects you mentioned. And I have one that's just an overall draft strategy for the bills that will apply to cornerback and then one that's quarterback, cornerback specific. So overall, what have we seen since Brandon Bean got hired as GM with the bills first round picks? It's been Josh Allen, Tremaine Edmonds, Ed Oliver, and then they sent it first for Stefan Diggs, so that doesn't count. And then it was Greg Russo. So you have Josh Allen, the ultimate ball of clay quarterback with traits out the wazoo, and they gambled they could put the traits together. Greg Russo, freakishly long um, defensive end who was productive in college, but was somebody that people described as 
just tons of traits, tons of length. And man, if he puts it all together, it's going to be scary. Tremaine Edmonds, not a raw player coming out by any means, but 19 years old when he was drafted, 6'4", run a 4'5", traits out the wazoo. The only outlier, and when I say traits, that also comes into size. So Allen, big. Uh, Rousseau, big. Edmonds, big. The Bills stick to their prototypes when it comes to size and their thresholds for that. That one outlier is Ed Oliver. He does not have the prototype size. And I think you can talk yourself into the Bills were bended off of that a little bit for Oliver because they thought they were getting an elite prospect. So you're willing to make an exception for an elite prospect. Why am I bringing all that up? One thing that's really plaguing a couple guys that are going to be mentioned here is arm length. Trent McDuffie has sub 30 inch arms. Um, Roger McCreary has, I think, 27 inch arms. So for that, I think McCreary is somebody who wouldn't even be mentioned in the Bills war room on uh, the first round. And I do, I've been wondering what that would mean for McDuffie, because like you said, Luca, he checks so many boxes, just an overly solid player in every area. He, he has great vision on the ball. He breaks on the ball. Well, he covers well in man and zone. He just does everything right, but he wasn't born with 30 inch arms. And do the bills have a hard line in the sand of if you have sub 30 inch arms, we're not going to take you in the first round. I think that's going to be interesting. Now, the other piece of this, um, what have the bills done at cornerback? They have, no matter what they have prioritized guys who can tackle. Tackling is not optional at cornerback. So now if the Bills found a Deion Sanders who could absolutely erase a receiver and make some business decisions, yeah, maybe they make an Ed Oliver-like concession for the tackling. But to me, when I'm reading these scouting reports on guys and I'm seeing uh, not a willing tackler shies away from contact, to me, I just demote those guys on my what I think the Bills are going to do board. So that's where for me, Stingley, probably is not thought of as highly by the bills as you think of him. But keep in mind, the bills pick 25th. So they may not view Stingley as a top 10 player, but when you get down to pick 25 and you have a guy that has put out elite, elite tape two years ago, and you, you know, you're not going to get a perfect player at pick 25. It just, it, there's not a lot of TJ Watts out there that just, you pick in the back half of the draft, they come in and boom, they're just instantly dominant. Um, you're going to find a player that you're going to have to either be okay with them missing X, Y, and Z, or you have to figure out an attitude situation. It's the 25th player in the draft. So it's possible the bills look at it and they're like, man, he has this potential to have this ceiling. We get him into our building with Micah Hyde and Jordan Poyer and and, uh, Tredavious white around our leadership circle. And he's going to be the best version of himself here. I could see it. I don't think he's somebody they would take off their board. But I don't know necessarily that he would be overly appealing to to them if they had a top 10 pick. That's that's where I'm at with him. I think at 25, he's very much in play, but I don't think he's somebody that that they would be in love with if they picked higher. Um, Let's see. You mentioned Kair Elam. One thing that concerns me about Kair Elam is he already is having knee injuries. And you just hate to see that with a young guy because those things can linger. It's kind of like a back, you know, like. Once your knee gets bad, it, it's, it, you know, you can have the surgeries, you can clean it up, but it just feels like it's one of those things where that could linger. It, it just makes me nervous. And he's, he's not that he's not a willing tackler. He's just not very good at it right now. 
And he also gets flagged a lot for, you know, illegal contact. He's kind of grabby in coverage. That's something you can coach out of him, I'm sure. But those are just some concerns with him. One guy you didn't mention, Luca, I was a little surprised is Andrew Andrew Booth Jr. Is that somebody that um you don't think would be in play at 25? I do. Um he he's on my list. Let, let me put it first and foremost. He is on my list. I I do like a lot of what he offers. I just also have seen kind of like he's floated around there a lot. The interesting part about this corner, you know, the draft when it comes to corners is they're almost interchangeable Mm -hmm. a lot of times. So I don't really know. You you almost always know like sauce Gardner is going top 10, but outside of that, I don't know where the rest of them are going to fall. So I don't know where they're going to be because again, if I'm seeing a guy like Kyer Elam fall to the mid second round, I'm almost looking at an Andrew Booth Jr. and being like, is he going to fall to us in the late second? Because that would, if we wanted to say double dip, I mean, imagine a world of which you take. So I know, and I kind of agreed with your Stingley take just real quick. I, I, if we were top 15, 16, whatever you want to call it, I don't think Stingley would be a guy they're looking at. That would be maybe where they are trying to trade up and get a sauce gardener or something. If they could flirt with that idea. Um, at 25, say you take a sauce or sorry, a Derek Stingley. And then all of a sudden sitting there in the second round, Andrew Booth Jr. is landing in your lap. That's, that's a wild concept to me, but at the same time, he could be there. I mean, that's a sexy Again, draft. That is a great draft. That's all of a sudden addressing your corner with one of two options. And then honestly, if both worked out, holy crap, uh, <laughs> that would be awesome. But, um, yeah, I, I do like Andrew Booth. I, I do think he is a guy that is viewed to be potentially in that spot. I I have seen him in the late first round um, in plenty of places. So I, I would agree with that. I, I know he does have a really good, you know, speed to athleticism to size kind of metric to him. Yeah. Um. So I know he's definitely up your alley for sure. So that's one reason why he, he appeals to me is he checks the athletic boxes perfectly. He's a big guy. He can fly. It's a straight line speed. So what you do see with him though, is I don't know if it's hips or reaction, but if he's in his back pedal and he has to turn and run with a receiver on a go route, he's going to be in his hip pocket the whole way. Good luck running past him. You're not going to do it. But if you want to run a hitch in front of him, that's where you can see him struggle with that recognition and it's going to be a challenge for him. And, you know, it's hard to learn how to play corner in the NFL. I mean, talk about playing with fire. So it's not a really forgiving league. Um, so when you're looking at it through the lens of a guy that's ready to come in right off the bat and be cornerback one, if Trey White's out, look, Andrew Booth comes off the bus and he's better than anything the Bills have at outside cornerback outside of Tredavious White. He would be starting barring a t- catastrophe over um Cam Lewis opposite of Dane Jackson. So he'd be in there, but to me, it would be more of a, we're going to survive with what we have with him, maybe scheme around him, but man, that would be an exciting pick for end of the year and going into next year when we can get him fully developed. And I, that's the kind of pick I would be okay with. I think that's where I was really trying to go with the Trey white pick is with, with the Trey white situation. I'm not super concerned about, it from the standpoint of September and October, yes, it'd be nice to have somebody that's ready to come in and get hit the ground running. But if you get an Andrew Booth 
or like a Tariq Woolen, who is just a physical freak, elite athlete, 6'3". But the issue is, um, in Tariq Woolen's case, he he actually got a 10 on the RAS scale. Just look him up. He is a physical freak. And when you read up on him, he has a desire to be great. So it's not like somebody that just has been a better athlete than everybody else at every level and hasn't really had to put the work in. He has a desire to be great. He has a similar path to Trayvon Diggs, where he was recruited to Washington as a wide receiver, but he converted to defensive back in 2019. So when you look at it through that lens, he just he doesn't have the time on task of repetition and learning and reaction. So there would be some growing pains with him. But man, when you want to talk about somebody who like a Josh Allen, like a Tremaine Edmonds, like a Gregory Rousseau, who just checks every single athletic box. And if you can unlock that skill, you're going to have somebody who's in the conversation for best in the league. Tariq Woolen is right there. I, I would be okay if the bills took him at 25, but you have to keep Mm. in mind he, he might be kind of shaky the first month or two of the season when you really need that pick to come in. So that might be a situation where then you do double dip and, you know, maybe you take like a, a Taylor Britt in the second or third round, or even a Kobe Bryant funny name, but you know, um, you know, a guy (laughs) that can come in right off the bat and play. And maybe it's a situation where your first round pick isn't even on the field, but your third round pick is. Um, but I am definitely in favor of, of gambling on the traits. That's where I like Woolen and Booth. Um, to circle back on Booth, another reason why he's appealing to me is I feel like he, I don't think he's going to bust. Like, even if he doesn't work out at corner, I feel like he has an excellent path to being a very good safety. Think of Aaron Williams with much more athleticism. Aaron Williams was drafted as a corner out of Texas. And it was pretty evident early on, like, okay, he's got the athleticism, but he just doesn't have the hips to play corner. They moved him back to safety and he was pretty good. He was, Bill's fans will say it was great, but he was pretty good. Um, I think Andrew Booth to me, the way he, the way he can run in a straight line, the way he's like a missile when he sees what's happening, but maybe doesn't have the ability to, to stick on routes. Um, I could see him transitioning to safety. And when you look at what the bill's age of their two starting safeties are, you know, having a guy like Andrew Booth in year two or three, finding out, okay, I can't play corner in this league, but man, I'll be a good safety. Not the worst thing in the world for the bills as a fallback plan, but I think plan a would have to be, let's see if he can unlock his potential and be a good cornerback for the bills. A name you mentioned earlier in the show, Marcus Jones. God, I love Marcus Jones. Luca. I love Marcus mm-hmm. Jones, mm-hmm. but just yeah, you're right. There's, there's no path to him being on the bills. Unfortunately, you know, not unfortunately, we all love Teron Johnson, but he's their nickelback. He's not going anywhere. And Marcus Jones is a nickel exclusive player in the NFL, just an absolute dog of a football player. And I mean that as a compliment. Um, just he, he plays with such an intensity. You can see it when you watch him. He's 5'8", 174, but he looks like he thinks he's 250 pounds out there. And an added bonus is he is an elite returner. So he would check that box for the bills. So for me, if, you know, I, I totally understand why the bills wouldn't take him in the first or second round because he's limited to being in the slot. He's going to be excellent at it, but Man, if he starts falling into the third round because teams are looking at him like a 5'8", 174-pound player, I, if I'm the Bills, I just take him and figure out a way to get him on the field because I think he's that good. 
But yeah, I think for the most part, he's probably not going to be in their plans, but he's somebody that unless he goes to New England or Miami, I'm going to be rooting for because I think he's excellent. He was one of my favorite players to watch in this process. Uh, one more thing I want to mention before I kick it back to you is um, it is has been confirmed that the Bills have a top 30 visit with Taylor Britt, the cornerback, um, pops in zone, good special teams contributor, looking more like a third or fourth round player there. So that's a name to keep an eye on. Um, but yeah, there are a lot of names here, a lot of names early. Um, outside of Sauce Gardner, there's probably no perfect player in this draft, but there's definitely going to be some options there at pick 25. And if receivers go the way I think they're going to go, I think I'm going to be sitting there on draft night wanting the Bills to take a corner, and I feel like we're aligned on that. Yeah, we are definitely aligned on that. I think um, I might be a little more certainly <laughs> on the you know milk crate about it. I'm, I'm standing on my box just preaching it. Um, but the so uh, what do you call it? Woolen. The woolen. I love. I love the idea of woolen. I don't think there's a need to take him at 25 because I think there's a serious possibility of him sitting there at the late second. Yeah. And that is where I would really pull the trigger on a guy like him. Yeah. Um, so I, I look at 25 more as, you know, trying to take the value that's there. That wouldn't be there obviously come day two, but yeah, I love, love everything about the idea of him. I think, I think everything you said about him is spot on. Um, he is, yes. I mean, six foot four with, I want to say he was sub four four forty. Oh yeah, fourth fourth. I think he was in the four twos. Yeah, like just unbelievable metrics where you're just like, holy crap, where did this guy come from? But um, yeah, I mean, the, the interesting point I think you brought up too, and I j- I'll wrap it up with this: is you could go with a guy that you really aren't certain on at twenty five, or even say say they go, let's say real quick, the hypothetical game, they were to able to get a wide receiver there. And then all of a sudden they take Woolen with the second round pick. So wide receiver first, Woolen the second round pick. All of a sudden you're like, well, man, we really could use a reliable guy out there, you know, that could maybe fit a zone scheme. I'm just going to say zone prominently there for a reason. Um, this is where I'm going to get my cheap ASU plug in here. You have a guy sitting there that's going to be in the very late parts, you know, probably five, six, you know, fifth sixth round and chase lucas he is looked at as a zone exclusive guy but what i will tell you is he is damn good at being a zone corner he doesn't have recovery speed he doesn't have any of that stuff but he is very very smart and very good at assignments so you look at someone like that and i'm sure there's many other examples i just know him very well from what seemed like his nine years at asu i think he only played four but uh it just seemed like he was there forever um you have individuals like that where maybe you can bring him in and maybe he works out out of training camp and stuff. And you're like, Oh wow, he's picking up things a lot quicker. So we can rely on him a little bit more out there and out the gate while a Tyreek Woolen is, you know, figuring out the NFL and everything else with that, that comes with. So I, I think that point right there that you made is an excellent point. I think that's a great one where it might confuse some at first, but at the end of the day, it's about getting results. And then eventually this prospect that is a freak should hopefully come in. And hey, by season's end, if you get Tariq Woolen, you know, going and then all of a sudden you have uh, hopefully Trey back and he is doing decent by the time the end of the season comes around. And then all of a sudden you have a reliable guy who knows and you can plug and play with a Chase Lucas or whatever. And you have Taron Johnson doing his thing. All of a sudden, that weakness where you looked at Dane Jackson and Cam Lewis became a incredible strength, and you can move forward with that. 
How much does this cornerback need change if they do bring in a Stefan Gilmore? Min- uh, I don't want to say minimally because I mean Stefan Gilmore is still Stefan Gilmore. Um, that that definitely is someone you know that moves the needle. Mm-hmm. I don't think it moves it enough. Where again, like I, I think I went back and I, you know, sixty five percent. I'm pretty sure you need to draft a damn corner at twenty five. Yeah, like that's how I feel about it. But it's sixty five percent, not. 85 or whatever you want to put it at there you know it's it's definitely where i'm like okay i mean maybe maybe i can flirt around with other ideas other insurance policies things out there that are you know great tremendous value sitting there at 25 now i'm like okay i you can you can make sense of it all of a sudden right that makes sense to me if you bring in a stefan gilmore i would definitely let's say i'll get off my box i'll be yelling it from a you know perspective of everyone else in the crowd rather than trying to get up to make sure I'm saying it louder than everyone else. You know, I'll, I'll put it that way. Just a nice analogy there. I do think Gilmore is highly unlikely. I think he's probably going to get paid by somebody that has more room than the bills, but I do think the bills are probably going to be looking at somebody on the level of a Joe Hayden, Savior Rhodes. Maybe they're going to finally listen to Luca and take a shot on Kevin King. Oh, so that'd be nice. I think that there's a chance probably even a good chance that before the draft Bean insulates himself with some sort of a veteran. So he doesn't feel pressure to add a cornerback who can step right in and play that you don't want to, you don't want to be drafting from a position of panic. And right now, I think we both agree that the cornerback room as it is, is bordering on panic. And that's not a position that you want to be in because you lose a lot of leverage in that situation. So we talked a lot about cornerback, Let's transition over to the other defensive back safety with the bills. We know the story. Hyde and Poyer are excellent. They are the best safety tandem in the NFL. And the question for me is not, are they excellent? Because we know what they do for this defense, the way they can both play free and strong and the way they can mix and match coverages. They can give quarterbacks headaches. But the question we have to ask ourselves is kind of a two-parter. One, how much longer can we bank on them being excellent because they both are on the other side of 30? And two, when do we want to start doing something about it? That's a great question. Um, I don't, if we're going to talk about this draft, and I'm not going to spend too much time because you didn't ask necessarily yet, but I don't see them addressing it. I don't even see them looking at it as like I did with the linebacker position, right? I don't see them going definitely one eye on the future going, hey, we really need to get people in the room because at least you have a guy like DeMar Hamlin there that I definitely think they have, you know, some hopes for of some variety there. And I I think he's a promising guy that we still have yet to, you know, explore who he is as a player in this team. But they definitely have to consider the fact that they are going to both be 31 when the season kicks off and that, you know, unfortunately no one can outrun time and eventually Hyde and Poyer will no longer be the best safety tandem in the NFL just due to the fact that they will be too old to be that. And it's a sad thing to say RIP to that you need to at least do your due diligence and see what's out there, whether it's in the draft or free agency all the time. That's, that's the job that is beans job. But 
I don't see it being something that they even remotely consider at 25 in this draft. And, you know, they probably have some people. I honestly, I will admit, I didn't look at one safety. I'm so (laughs) proud of having the best safety tandem in the league. I didn't even look at one other than Kyle Hamilton, but that's just because I watch Notre Dame football every weekend as well. Yeah. Too much family that I can't. Um, But Hamilton ain't falling to 25, and we're not trading up to, you know, seven to get him. So I didn't look at anyone. I don't think there was anyone I was missing anyways. And at the end of the day, if they find good value in one at, you know, say late third, you know, day three, I think is more where they're probably looking at that. If there's someone they like that fell or something of that variety, maybe they take someone. I don't know who that would be. I wouldn't even have a remote idea of who that would be. But that's the only thing I can think of when they're thinking of the future with Hyde and Poyer in this draft. So spinning it forward after the 2022 season, Hyde and DeMar Hamlin are the only safeties on the roster. Jordan Jordan Poyer is going into the last year of his deal and Jaquan Johnson's rookie deal is up after 2022. Wow. It doesn't feel like he's been in the league for four years, but here we are. Um, I agree with you on DeMar Hamlin being interesting. And it's also worth mentioning that uh, Sean McDermott and Leslie Frazier have an almost flawless track record with getting the most out of defensive backs. I say almost flawless because we can't ignore the fact that Vontae Davis did happen. But mm-hmm. when Jordan Poyer was b- brought to the bills, he was a mid-level free agent coming off of an injury. And now he's one of the best safeties in the league. When Micah Hyde was brought to the bills, he was a pretty good safety in green Bay, even very good, but not in the conversation for best in the league. He has elevated his game to best in the league. Tredavious White, when he was drafted at at 27th overall, that was the draft, if you remember back, uh, Marcus Lattimore. And he was not considered an elite prospect. In fact, when a lot of people, when when the Bills took him, a lot of people were hoping that O.J. Howard had fall to the Bills and there was disappointment that he didn't. And Tredavious White was considered like, okay, I mean, he, I've seen him in mocks going late first, early second. And this, you know, this is a pick and he's turned into one of the best cornerbacks in football. Uh, Teron Johnson, a day three pick turned into one of the better nickel nickelbacks in football. Um, you have uh, Levi Wallace, an undrafted free agent who has been a solid starter the last three years. They get the most out of their defensive backs. So I very much think that McDermott, and Frazier are fine with building someone like a DeMar Hamlin or maybe a Jaquan Johnson. Johnson did play for Poyer last year in the Washington, not excuse me, the Houston game when Poyer sat and played well, but it was against Houston. So it's really kind of hard to tell. And I could see a situation where if for whatever reason Poyer is done after this year, they feel good about Jaquan Johnson or DeMar Hamlin. But before we get into this draft, because I do have some prospects I want to tell you, talk to you about. Jordan Poyer going into the last year of his deal. How big of a priority is that for you, given his age, given the other contracts they have coming down the pike? Would you put it on the same level or even ahead of getting Tremaine Edmonds figured out, Ed Oliver figured out, or Dawson Knox figured out? And I will tell you that for me, Ed Oliver is priority one. Dawson Knox is right behind him, priority two. I then have a big gap. And then I have Jordan Poyer and then I have Tremaine Edmonds. How do you see it? I would lessen the gap between Knox and Poyer, but I think your order is spot on. Um, it's, 
I think the greatest point you made in that is that, you know, McDermott has gotten the most out of DBs, especially with the bills. And it, it seems like this staff knows exactly what they're doing when it comes to defensive backs. And it almost seems like in a way at safety, they're getting a lot more maximizing more than they are at corner. Cause at least Trey is still viewed as a first round talent and everything like that. Whereas Hyde and Poyer were never that in their career. Hyde also fun fact. And you know, in Packers, I mean, he was a slot corner, even like they used him as kind of a utility guy. He wasn't even just a full out safety. So they really shaped them into these all pro safeties that we have today. And I, I just, you want to get everything you can out of Poyer. Honestly, to me, the Poyer situation is interesting. So if I speculate here and I say, Hey, we win a championship this year, we win the Super Bowl. Yay. Woo. Um, Love it already. I don't see, yeah, I don't see Poyer staying in that circumstance, to be quite honest. I think Poyer has eyes on other things. I think Poyer wants to be other places. I think he loves Buffalo and everything that it comes with. I think a championship, though, would change his perspective on stuff, and he would just want to enjoy the later years of his life and everything that comes with it and who he's involved with and everything in there. But beyond that, I do think that we would do everything we could to sign, you know, extend him, sign, you know, sign him. Um, and I think that should be a priority because Poyer will still have good football in him, you know, post this season. I would hope both him and Hyde will. So I would definitely put it Oliver Knox, Poyer, Edmonds. There is an argument to be made Edmonds over Poyer. I do have them extremely close. Yeah. I just don't know how they're viewing the linebacker position as we discussed before Oliver to me is just the significant spike up, get it extended now because I can foresee Oliver's production just skyrocketing even more this year. I think he has finally gotten to the point where I'm like, Holy crap, he might actually end up being what we thought he was. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, there's a little bit of a gap and then Knox Knox is still very important, but yeah, to Poyer after that, absolutely. I think that's that's definitely big because it would be really nice to have a guy better than worse having Poyer and Hyde in the locker room when you want to bring in their replacements. I think they would understand that hopefully within their career that that day will come. And if we had someone else there like a Demar Hamlin or Jaquan Johnson, you know, that they are willing to kind of work with them and let it be a smoother transition than it needs to be. I'm not saying that they would then become those players because you can never replicate Hyde and Poyer, I don't think. But you would hope that they could at least give you majority of the production moving forward and maybe eventually become somewhat close to the production that they were. So definitely someone you want to keep around beyond this season. Yeah, I think he's pretty much everything Sean McDermott wants out of a football player. Just from the way he's built himself from the ground up, um, the way he's been doubted his whole career and the way he's turned himself into such an excellent team leader and player on this team. I do agree that if the Bills win the Super Bowl, I think there's going to be a lot of guys that probably, you know, you hit that finish line and you're kind of like, what's next? But I mean, geez, if they hit, if they win a Super Bowl it, outside of Josh Allen leaving, I would just be like, hey, thanks for coming. Like, thanks for that memory. <laughs> um, you know, Jordan Poyer is going to be on the wall of fame. I, I, firmly believe that if even if he doesn't get this team to a Super Bowl, I think he and Hyde are that good. Um you think they would put them both on together? Uh, potentially. You know, I've thought about that. Like if they win a Super Bowl or, you know, even if it's not a Super Bowl, it, you, you almost need one of them to have their 
Teron Teron Johnson moment, you know, where they have like a game winning play in a playoff game, right? So Poy or Hyde came close last year with that ridiculous interception against mm-hmm. Mac Jones, but that play gets largely forgotten because of the game just got so out of hand and it became a story about the Bills offense. But you know that first drive, and we're getting into the weeds here, but um, you know it looked like New England was able to move the ball pretty consistently. And that was a pretty good throw and Hyde just made a great play. So maybe that was his moment. I feel like if one of them get a game winning play in a playoff game, maybe that would elevate them ahead of the other one as far as who goes on the wall first. But yeah, I I think as long as they're both here for a few more years, they're both going to go on the wall of fame. And I think Jerry Hughes will be up there. And, um, you know, a lot of guys from this team are going to be up there because there's unfortunately not a lot of names from the last 20 years that they have to worry about contending with. Um, I want to see Poyer brought back. Um, I I know you've heard the same rumblings I've heard where maybe he and his family are getting a little tired of living in New York, or at least, you know, being in New York for football season, which has nothing to do with Buffalo. It's definitely more politically driven and just kind of Yeah, similar to Cole Beasley. Yeah. We'll just kind of leave it at that. I mean, I they're free to think however they want to think, and you don't really have to look too hard to see uh their views on certain things. Um, let's see. So when it comes to what the Bills should do in the draft, it is interesting, Luca, that two top 30 visits. And so top 30 visits, these teams get 30 players they get a visit lined up with. Um, And so far, two of the confirmed ones for the Bills have been safeties. They were both spotted in the Buffalo airport tonight and were confirmed by NFL media. One is Lewis Sign, who is a second round prospect, according to the draft network. Not the best in coverage, but just a really good athlete, 9.77 RAS score, um, kind of a guy that you can get in, and if you drafted him in the second or third round, you would hope to take advantage of his athleticism and just turn him into a better coverage player. Um, and then the other one is Nick Cross, 9.9 RAS, later draft round prospect, fifth, sixth round, ridiculous athlete, uh, probably more of that ball of clay. Uh, maybe he just, you know, is a special teamer for a year or two, and then maybe he's ready to take over as a starter. Interesting name to kick around there. And I have one draft idea where things would have to fall pretty poorly in the first round, but there's one guy that I, if, and, you know, Hamilton aside, cause that's not going to happen. But if the bills took a safety in the first round, if they take this guy, I'd actually be okay with it. Things would have to fall pretty poorly where, Three or four corners are off the board that I really liked. A few receivers are off the board. Um, you know, a couple offensive linemen. But I could talk myself into Daxton Hill from Michigan because he checks two boxes for me. One, he think of him similar to Minka Fitzpatrick, where he's going to come into the league and he's going to play safety, but he can also play corner. And that's a very important box for 2022. Now there is some developmental risk there. Think about Cody Ford, where he comes into the league. You had a need at tackle. You played him at tackle and then turned out he wasn't able to play tackle in the NFL. So you play him at guard and you kind of stunted his growth by bouncing him from position to position. But this is the NFL. Sometimes you get bounced around from position to position. Daxton Hill is an excellent football player. He started off as a, as a um, college cornerback. He has the hips to play college cornerback or NFL cornerback. But he actually transitioned to safety um, in Michigan and was just excellent. 
And he's he's good in zone, good in man. He's definitely good in run support. He can play free. He can play um, strong. He just he reads like Hyde and Poyer. And what I love about him is, okay, Hyde and Poyer here this year. He's not going to beat any of those guys out. No safety in this draft is going to beat either of those guys out this year. But he could line up outside at cornerback and get us through this year. And, hey, if we find out he's an excellent cornerback, great. Leave him there. We're fine. Or we can move him to safety in a couple years when either Hyde or Poyer or both move on. And there's one of your starting safeties. And what's interesting also about him, because Jordan Poyer, you mentioned it earlier. Oh, you mentioned it with Hyde. Micah Hyde started his career as a cornerback. Jordan Poyer was drafted into the NFL as a cornerback. So Daxton Hill would follow a similar path where he's drafted by the Bills at pick 25. You have to take him in the first round. He's going to be a first round player. And he's drafted. He plays cornerback his first couple of years, transitions to safety. He is six foot, 191 pounds, the same exact measurements as Jordan Poyer. I love everything about this kid. He's got, he's a great athlete. He's a team leader. He checks so many boxes. It's one of those things where if the Bills take a safety in the first round, people are going to be going nuts, but I'll be able to talk myself into this kid pretty easily. Um, so those are the three prospects I had pretty much lined up. I don't know if you have anything on those guys based on something I said. No, but uh, I love the Daxton Hill idea. I um, I I knew a little bit about him just from spectating college football, Michigan having a great year, the OSU game, all that fun stuff. But um, that's a hell of an idea. Uh, that would be that I, you could talk me into that. I think you already kind of half did. Um, you could definitely talk me into that one for sure. But uh, yeah, that would be interesting. I, uh, I don't know. I, I don't have anything to add. Like I said, I didn't really look into safeties. I, I apologize to that for anyone listening, but um, it's just, it was not looked at something to me that I really needed to dive in. But if there was a Daxton Hill guy there, I am open to having someone that is very versatile that could then replicate potentially what Jordan Poyer did. If you're connecting all those dots, yeah, that would be pretty awesome. Yeah. I like him. And it's a similar conversation around booth, the cornerback where you could see him coming in as a cornerback. And if that doesn't work out, he checks the box at safety. I think Hill is a better prospect than booth and Hill probably is better off at safety. So even if he's good at corner, you probably still want to see what he can do at safety. But man, he checks that early box of needing a corner year one, and then he could move wherever you need him to after that. And just a moving chess piece in an NFL that every year seems like it's becoming more and more positionless on defense anyway. So that is a look. We were supposed to be short tonight, and we have already gone two hours and 10 minutes, Luca, and we still have Mm -hmm. to play our big three game. But I would be remiss because I know there's something you want to talk about. And I'll give you at least a couple minutes to talk about it because you've told me off the air you want to talk about it. Luca, if the Bills take maybe the greatest punting prospect we've ever seen, how high would you be willing to take him? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I would be willing to take the absolute boom cannon of a leg individual, the San Diego State legend himself. I would be willing to take that gentleman I'd probably take him in the third round. Third round. Wow. Okay. Oh, yeah. I'd do it. Like, oh, my God. (laughs) I just, just please, like, give me a guy who can absolutely boom the ball out of a stadium. Like, that would, how much fun would that be to watch? Just entertainment value alone. How much fun? 
in windy Buffalo, New York to watch a dude do that. Now I'm being, I'm being ridiculous. Like <laughs> if I wanted to be real here, um, I'd probably say, I'd probably say fifth round. See, I was going to say fourth. I think if you, I think he's probably, I think there's a very good chance he goes in the third round. We have not seen a punting prospect like this ever. The guy has a cannon for a leg. And I know you said how much fun would it be. I'm almost never having fun when the Bills punt, but as mad as I was when they had to punt this year, I was even madder when those punts went 15 yards. Um, so if you could get look, we can just we can just literally go an entire season without punting. We've shown we can do it multiple games in a row. Mm-hmm. Why not just string them all together and never punt for an entire year? So the player we're talking about is the punt god, Matt Ariza. And the one drawback to him is he has never been a holder in his life. I think you can learn how to hold. There was actually a story Pat McAfee told how Mm. when the Colts drafted him, he had never had any experience holding and he lied to Bill Polding about it. So he'd get drafted. (laughs) Um, So that's kind of funny. I'm confident he can learn how to punt. But yeah, I mean, would the Bills have the two strongest kicking punters and in Tyler Bass and Matt Ariza? I'd be fine with the fourth round because what are you hoping for in the fourth round? Hoping for a player that can be a backup contribute, maybe develop into a solid starter, or you can take a guy who's probably going to give you one of the best three or four punters in the league right out of the box. And by year two, probably the best punter in in the league by a large margin. And that special teams edge, as much as I don't want to see the bills punt, as much as I expect them to go one or two or three games next year without punting at all, um, that's a nice weapon to have in your back pocket on a day when your offense isn't feeling it. Um, so I'm with you. I would take him. I, I would draw the line at taking a first, second, or third round pick on him. Um, but fourth round, I don't. I also don't think he'd make it to the Bills in the fourth round. I, I think it's going to be one of those things where if he's on the board after the first three rounds, and then teams go home for the night, and they get to kind of restack their board and they see what's out there, and they're like, okay, oh, we can take our. 16th best cornerback we can take our 18th best guard or we can take this punter who's maybe the best punter we've ever seen i think that's when you see him come off the board at the top of the fourth round so i laughed when you said third round but that's probably where the bills would have to go to get him um so we just spent three or four minutes talking about punting oh well worth it but we are aligned that neither one of us would be upset if the bills drafted the punt god ideally not before day three but he would be a fun fun addition to this team All right, Luca, we have a big three game to play tonight. Um, We are going to be playing the big three, the best defensive draft pick of the drought. And Luca, I believe it is your turn to ask me the trivia question to see who gets to go first. It sure is. It's a real short question, but since the 2001 season, the Buffalo Bills have had a total of two players lead the team in total tackles for that season. That was not a linebacker. Can you name those two players? Okay, two players that have led the team in tackles for that year that was not a linebacker. Yeah, so Mm -hmm. literally the leading tackle getter for that season was not a linebacker. So... I really want to say Antoine Winfield because he was such a good tackler, but man, it's hard to imagine a cornerback led a team in tackles. I also thought lawyer Malloy, but he was competing with Takeo spikes and London Fletcher those years. So it would almost have to be a, 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 a safety that was on a defense with just really bad linebacker play. 
and Jairus Bird was not a tackler. Oh, God, oh man, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say Antoine Winfield. I'm not overly confident in that. And then I'm going to say who was a safety on a really bad Bills team. Oh, God, what? It, it, Aaron Williams was not a tackler. Oh man, this is tough. I'm gonna say it's a pretty crazy one, isn't it? Yeah, I'm gonna go Antoine Winfield and thinking, thinking, thinking. I guess I'll go Aaron Williams. It doesn't feel right though. All right. You went 0 for 2. Bummer. I'll be honest. Yeah. Uh one was very recent, 2020, Jordan Poyer with 124 total tackles. Oh. And then in 2015, Corey Graham. With 127. Corey Graham, he was playing safety that year, right? Yes, he was. Okay. Okay. UNH legend. Wow. Corey Graham. Okay. You know what's so, funny um, about that question? And I'm not making yeah, an excuse because I probably wouldn't have gotten to Poyer <laughs> anyway. But for some reason, I block out like the new version of the Bills when I'm thinking of that stuff. Yeah. No. It it, it was an interesting one because like I know a lot of times we do stuff with drought related, although I think our first question was uh draft related not drought but yeah i was like I, I so i started digging into it not to get off on a tangent here but i started digging into it i was like wow we haven't had a lot of safeties get a lot of tackles like it, it was really weird to me so i then started digging a little bit more sure enough it was only twice since 2001 did they lead the team um and into that i think hmm i think i'll go second and two i think i'll give you the first pick mm. I'm looking for my list I made and I can't find it. So I'm going to have to go off of memory and that oh boy. is tough. So I feel like I know why you went second because I think, you know, who I'm going to go with first. And I think, I think I know who you want to pick first, but you thought it was bad mm. value to take him number one. There you go. So I am going to say, I, I think there's probably only one right answer for the first one. And it is in 2006. In the fifth round, the Bills selected Kyle Williams. When you factor in the value of the pick, the value of the player, what he meant as a leader on and off the field, and what he meant to that team as a leader in the locker room to not only connect them to their new coach in McDermott, to be a liaison to, hey, here's this guy's process. You know, you know how it goes. When a new coach comes in, you got to have your best players buy in and Kyle Williams bought in. And that was huge. Kyle Williams and Eric Wood. I mean, say what you want to about Hyde and Poyer. They were new guys on the block that year. So it didn't matter how good they were. It was about seeing the guys that had been there as the best players. So it was Wood, Incognito, um, Jerry Hughes, and then obviously Kyle Williams. Those guys bought in Kyle Williams at the front of that line. What's interesting about 2006 is we talked about it a little bit last week about how it was such a miserable draft. When you look at in the first round, the bills took Dante Whitner and then they traded back up and took a defensive tackle in John McCargo. And then in the third round, they took Luca's guy, Ashton Yabodi. And then in the fourth round, they took <laughs> safety co Simpson. Kyle Williams was the fifth defensive player. The bills drafted in that draft. He was the second defensive tackle. The bills drafted in that draft. And he went on to be maybe the best player on the Bills roster during the entire drought. It's debatable. There are some other guys very much in that conversation. But for the value they got Kyle Williams at the fifth round pick, 
for as horrendous as Marv Levy was as GM, his one gift to us was Kyle Williams, and we will take that gift and run with it. That is my number one pick. Very good pick. I I don't want to say obvious, but it, I I agree that was definitely one that glares at you. I love that we just went right back into the 06 draft. Mm-hmm. Um, that's fantastic. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna start off with not the individual. I think you are, but I think I just have to do it as my first. Uh, in the 46th pick in the 2001 draft was one and only Aaron Schobel. Mm, great. Just, I, I have to give it him my first pick. It's not often that a second round pick in the NFL draft has three seasons of double digit sacks. And then it has two other ones that were eight and eight and a half for a team that, I mean, defensively they were good in that era, but still stunk. And overall, 78 sacks as a career. I mean, out the gate, even as a rookie, he started 11 games, six and a half sacks, 42 combined tackles. I mean, that for a rookie in the second round, that's great production. I mean, Epinesa was not giving us that production to put it into perspective here. And now you I mean, it just got better and better. And he gave us nine years of this. He was definitely an instant impact two Pro Bowls. I mean, it was just I think he even. Yeah, one year of second all team. He was a phenomenal player that you got at 46 in 2001 had to be my first pick, which is the second pick overall in this. I mean, definitely. But now I'm going to get into the one that I really wanted to do. Here. So before you move off of that, you know, what's interesting Ooh. about Showell is he reminds me so much of Jerry Hughes, where he played on a defense where if you start listing off your favorite players in that defense, he's probably not even in the top five of players you name. Like think about the bills last year. You'd get, Poyer, Hyde, Tredavious White, Ed Oliver. And it's almost like you have to remind yourself, oh yeah, Jerry Hughes is there. Same thing with Schobel. It was like Takeo Spikes, Lawyer Malloy, Clements, Winfield, London Fletcher, Pat Williams, Sam Adams. And like, oh yeah, by the way, Aaron Schobel, who just showed up and got eight to 10 sacks every year. Uh, that's a great pick by you. Uh, I, he was high on my list. I had some stuff written down. Um, second all time in Bill Sacks. Just a home mm-hmm. run pick by Tom Donahoe, who, you know, say what you want to about Tom Donahoe. He did a lot of things wrong, but that 2001 draft where he got Aaron Schobel was a brilliant draft for him. And spoiler alert, there might be another 2001 draftee coming up here relatively soon. <laughs> I, I sense foreshadowing in that it will not be my second pick here because my second pick, I just have to secure one of my top five favorite bills that's not a quarterback of all time. I need to get this guy in here with the 111th pick in 2003. How can we not take Terrence McGee? This is my shocked face. <laughs> I I had to have him. I, I knew I had to have him. This is why I passed you the first overall pick because Terrence McGee was just all time. And it's incredible to me that he fell to the 100th. 111th pick easy for me to say fourth round pick for us to just take and partner up with a Nate Clements and stuff like that and just go on a tear with two great corners for what would that be I want to say Clements left in 2007 so that was probably five years yeah Clements last year was 2006 yeah so McGee did not play much I know in his rookie season um, I think he was utilized more as a returner than anything, and it wasn't a ton even then. But then in 2004, of course, he exploded on the scene, 
we'll call it. I mean, 15 passes defended. I mean, he, I think he had three interceptions. He was just unbelievable. Second team all pro made the pro bowl essentially in what you can call his rookie year. Cause his rookie season, he made 14 game appearances, but he only started in two. He, he was essentially seldomly used. He was not really a factor. And I think that was just more of what the defense was rather than his skill set. But then, yeah, I mean, his career as a bill, I mean, the, the numbers are crazy at, if you want to, I mean, he led the league in 2007 with 21 passes defended 21 insane. That's a lot of tip balls. I'll just call it. I mean, that's, that's crazy, but I loved him. He was an electric factory. Of course we know about his return prowess as well. He was, you always wanted to watch. You wanted him to be on the field as much as it sucked defensively wise. You still loved watching him defensively. And then of course, as a returner, amazing. And then the funniest part with him too, as well to me, by the way, is the fact that he wasn't even the best corner. When you look at career wise, wasn't even the best corner taken in that round of that draft because literally nine picks later and Asante Samuel was taken by the New England Patriots. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, but still. Damn I mean, Patriots, they always get us. <laughs> let, let me not deter or make it sound like Terrence McGee is a bad pick because, God, I know both you and I love him, but I just, I needed my guy, good old Terrence McGee, on this team of mine in this draft. Do you remember after the blizzard, not the blizzard, the playoff game where it was, was it zero degrees bills Patriots 47 17 and there was a story that Bill Belichick went into the bills locker room and sought out Josh Allen and gave him some respect you remember hearing about that yes of course first time I heard about Bill Belichick doing that with a bills player was in 2004 it was week four the bills were 0-2 coming off of a bye week and the bills were playing the New England Patriots and the Bills lost that game. It was a close game, fought throughout. They ended up losing when Drew Bledsoe goes for some kind of bootleg and gets sacked by Ted Johnson, I believe. And um, Rodney Harrison picks up the ball and runs it back for a touchdown. The Patriots ended up winning by about, I think it was 31 to 17. But oh, spot on. in that game, uh, Terrence McGee had a kick return for a touchdown and a couple pass breakups. In the post-game press conference, um, Bill Belichick was – going through the game, going, you know, like his normal mumbling, like, Oh yeah, we got to do this and this better. And they do this, this. And then somebody asked about the kick return and he went totally out of character. And he was like, Oh, McGee killed us. McGee killed us. He is a great player. They have a real stud in him. And, um, I just, it stood out as like, Oh my God, Belichick has a personality and he would come out of character about very few players throughout his career. Like if they'd be playing the Ravens, you'd hear him just glow about Ed Reed and how amazing he was. So to have Terrence McGee on that level, now Belichick was the king of, you know, before a Bills game, he would, he would, you know, shine everybody up like, man, Ryan Denny and Chris Kelsey, like they have a real dominant pass rush. But, you know, like the way his voice just went up and he was super excited to talk about McGee, you could just tell it. And then they asked McGee about it. And he said that Belichick came up to him after the game and told him what a great player he was. Um, so that's, you know, everything you said about McGee was spot on tremendous value. And I think as sad as it is, I think the fact that he was a tremendous kick returner almost takes away from how good of a corner he was. Cause we all remember the kick return highlights, but mm -hmm. the man was a starting cornerback that his second year in the league had to take over for a position that was voided by Antoine Winfield leaving. And he held it down and that defense was dominant. So I love that pick.
Yeah, I mean, just to emphasize the corner thing, the passes defended numbers that he actually put up in a stretch is wild to me. So between 2004 and 2008, these were his statistics for passes defended. 15, 15, 11, 21, 18. That means he is making a play on the ball a lot. (laughs) That's insane. And one last thing on Terrence McGee. I think if you look at the entire playoff drought, Terrence McGee is responsible for maybe the coolest play of the entire drought. And it didn't even result in a first down or a touchdown. Exactly. (laughs) The almost touchdown against new Orleans in San Antonio, the greatest kick return you'll ever see where if his teammates would just get out of his way, they would have scored a touchdown. What a good player. Such a good highlight. Yeah. Yeah. Man. All right. We we can talk all day probably about him. So I'll let you go with, Pick number four. You know what was depressing about this exercise is, you know, I, I guess it shouldn't be depressing because when you're talking about a 17-year playoff drought, you don't really have a lot of good things to think about. But when I was going through the history of the Bills and the players they took during the playoff drought, there just there weren't a lot of smash success picks. And I know, like, oh, big shocker, they didn't make the playoffs for 17 years, but even even really bad teams they have smash success picks like there were players that were good players stefan gilmore was a good player when he was here he wasn't great until he left uh, marcel darius was a good player when he was here he was never great uh, you know we talked about leotis mckelvin he was just kind of like one of those guys that you were okay with him as your starter but he wasn't great and we're talking specifically about defense in this episode um, but you know dante whitner another guy that you took him and he was fine but he didn't ever you, you never really felt like he was a difference maker and I think that was just kind of depressing to look back on. I, you know, at a high level, I think I expected to have more options than what I wound up having going in because this next pick is going to feel maybe a little bit forced, um, but it's not. And I want to say one caveat. This is the drought bills. So one guy who would absolutely be on this list is Antoine Winfield, but he was drafted in 1999 and that team lost the Music City Miracle. So he is not qualified. Um, I'm going to pick a defensive back. In 2009, the Bills in the first round picked Aaron Mabin. That was a stinker. And then they took Eric Wood. That was a pretty good pick. And then in the second round, they took a cornerback out of Oregon named Jarris Bird. And Luke, I had no idea who Jarris Bird was. I was like, wait, they, why are we taking a cornerback? Well, then it turns out that this was the draft where Aaron Mabin was a linebacker in college and we're going to turn him into a defensive end. And Eric Wood was a center in college and we were going to play him at guard. And then Jarris Bird was a, um, he was a cornerback in college. We're going to play him at safety. And then Andy Levitri was a tackle in college. We're going to play him at guard. And it became a running joke of the bills can't even draft players to play the positions they're supposed to play. Well, Jarris Bird was excellent and he was a shining star on a team that had nothing around it. The guy made three Pro Bowls in Buffalo, and he was only here for, okay, let me get this together. So his last year was Marone's first year, so that was 2013. So 09, 10, 11, 12, 13. He made three Pro Bowls in five years in Mm -hmm. Buffalo, like on a drought team where Trent Edwards and Ryan Fitzpatrick were his quarterbacks. You want to talk about a guy that had the deck stacked against him in a popularity contest. Just unbelievable range 
tremendous nose for the ball. I know there's probably a game in your memory that maybe is his best game <laughs> where he single-handedly won them maybe the ugliest football game ever played in Arizona, two interceptions, just an automatic playmaker. And I tell you, Luca, the thing about Jairus Bird is it never felt like he really wanted to be here. And to me, this was kind of what we talked about last week, where if we had, you know, rewritten history and the Bills had taken Darrell Revis, like he would have left after one contract. I think Jairus Bird got a bad rap as a guy that didn't want to be here. Where in reality, if we're honest with ourselves, those Bills teams under Ralph Wilson just didn't really pay players. They they didn't want to Mac, they didn't want to stretch themselves out. Say what you want to about Terry and Kim Pagula. And I know we have some crossover with hockey fans and you're allowed to feel however you want to, if you're a hockey fan about Terry and Kim Pagula, but you cannot argue that they pump every financial resource they can into the bills. They stretch themselves out with cash flow to make sure the bills can do whatever they need to do. If you watch that Von Miller episode, um, they had to get approval from ownership to be able to make that contract offer. Um, and then where was I going with this? This is with oh, Jarris bird. He just, they didn't want to pay him. They kept franchise tagging him because the number was low for a safety. And I think that really um, bummed him out. And then in Doug Marone's first year, there was the plantar fasciitis situation and people were worried that maybe he was faking an injury so he wouldn't get hurt, which I think was grossly unfair. There was nothing about his character that would make you think he was faking an injury. And the day he left, it was very depressing. It never felt like he wanted to stay. It felt like he was just looking to get out of here and he went down to New Orleans he got a huge payday, and I guess the good news for the Bills is he never really amounted to much in New Orleans. But man, those those five years in Buffalo, he was a ray of sunshine in an otherwise dark cloud of a team and just a home run of a pick for a player on draft day when I had no idea who he was, just was the best player on the team for you know four or five years. It's so much fun to watch, and a team that couldn't score points, you at least got to see somebody on defense make plays. And Jairus Bird was a guy that just made plays consistently. Excellent pick. Excellent pick. Now, I will say, caveat, I was actually kind of secretly happy that he did what he did in Arizona. I hated that team in Arizona at that time. I mean, trading DRC for Kevin Cobb because you think it'll work. Oh, I forgot to trade my DRC heart. for Kevin Cobb. It just broke my heart. Oh. You want to talk about just wanting me to hate you. I didn't, and I still don't, but man. That really pissed me off. So Kevin Cobb gets hurt that game. Skelton throws that interception in overtime. Just an ugly game that made me laugh and go, this is what you fucking get. <laughs> so, no, great pick, though. Jerry's Bird was on my list, of course. I, Yeah, he's he was an instant impact. I think you failed to mention that he made a second team All-Pro twice in 2012 and 2013 as well. I did have that on down. Those- he was, I only had down for one time second team All-Pro. I didn't have it down for two, so that's a good call by you. Yeah, 2012 and 2013, twice on those suckful teams. Wow. <laughs> it's it's unbelievable yeah. what he was able to pull off in his limited time here in Buffalo. He's everything Bills fans thought Kiko Alonso was. <laughs> um, okay, speaking of Kiko Alonso, my next pick. No, I'm just kidding. Can you imagine? Um, okay, so this is where I also feel like I'm reaching again. Now, Jairus Bird was provably excellent, but it's just when a guy leaves after the, one contract and kind of once out, it just makes you feel like, okay, maybe he shouldn't qualify as best pick. And that's one reason why I'm not going with Stefan Gilmore here is because Stefan Gilmore, while he was very good and probably worthy of being in this conversation, really didn't blossom until he left Buffalo and just left with such a bad taste in his mouth. 
I'm going to pick a player that wasn't as good as Stefan Gilmore, even in Buffalo. Um, but at the time he was perfect for what the bills needed. And that is their 2001 first round pick, Nate Clements. Now we already mentioned the 2001 second round pick, Aaron Schobel, and they also got Travis Henry in that draft. What a draft by Tom Donahoe. Amazing draft. Really set the table for a team that I think had enough ro- uh, talent on their roster to make the playoffs if they just got anything out of their offense. Nate Clements came into the league and Greg Williams was his his head coach, but also the defensive coordinator for the most part. I know it was Jerry Gray by name, but they played the 46 defense that Greg Williams ran as a student under Buddy Ryan, which puts just a tremendous amount of pressure on your cornerbacks. They're on an island all game. And Nate Clements, while he had his moments where he bit on double moves, he wasn't a perfect cornerback by any means. He was one of the few players in that defense who turned the ball over. He had swagger. And this is the guy before Josh Allen. He owned Miami before Josh Allen really showed what it meant to own Miami because it seemed like every time the Bills played Miami, Clements was getting a pick six or multiple interceptions and just a true ball hawk. And this is, again, it's one of those situations where, like, Clements was a good player. He definitely wasn't a great player. He made one Pro Bowl in 2004, I believe. Um, and then he actually didn't get a second contract either. He was here 2001, 2, 3, 4, and 5. And then in 2006, he got franchise tagged. And he actually didn't sign the franchise tag. And instead, his agent worked out a deal with the Bills where they basically rewrote it as a one-year deal where the Bills promised not to franchise tag him again. And then he left to go to San Francisco. And that was Dick Duran's first year in 2006. So Dick Duran didn't want to have to basically, you know, have to replace a cornerback. So that was an agreement they made is, hey, I need you here for my, to help me run my defense year one. And then I'll let you hit free agency after that. And, you know, Clements, man, he he got a lot of flack from Bill's fans because, you know, he played opposite some really good players. He played opposite Antoine Winfield. He played opposite Terrence McGee. So he got picked on, but he had moments in games where he was shut down. There was a game in 2004 where the Bills were winning a bunch of games late down the stretch to make a playoff push, which ultimately fell short. But they played in Cincinnati when Chad Ochocinco was basically in the conversation for best wide receiver in football. Um, He had that list in his locker of cornerbacks he was going up against, and he was just embarrassing them all. And I'll never forget now, in all fairness, Carson Palmer was hurt. John Kitna was playing. Kitna was not a scrub, though. Nate Clements shut him down. And I'll never forget, because I was at that game, The final pl- one of the final plays of the game for the Bengals when they had the ball was a fade pass to Johnson. And Clements knocks the ball away midair after the ball gets knocked away, shoves Johnson to the ground. And as Clements lands, he's standing over him and is just going, not on me, not on me. And I just loved it because Johnson was just a big motor mouth before that game, just talking about how the Bills corners weren't that good. And your guy, Terrence McGee, was like, oh, you can talk to me all, all game if he wants to. I'm just going to worry about playing our scheme. Where Clements was more of the like, oh, he wants to talk to me. I'm going to talk back to him. Um, I really enjoyed Nate Clements. He was a fun player on a drought team. Also added some punt return touchdowns along the way. He had one against the Rams in 04. Had another one, I want to say, against the Colts in 01. Just a really good athlete, really good player. Maybe never the greatest cornerback in football, but a very good player and a very good pick. And I think the fact that he's on this top list maybe says more about the lack of success they had in drafting players than how good he was. But he was a good player. 
Yeah, he was he was actually on the top of my list. Now my list was also done in uh, chronological order based on draft, and I can tell you the list is not big. So yes, I would agree with your statement that it's not a not a lot of shining light out there when it came to uh, good value at defensive picks. Um, but yeah, Nate Clements, the the whole Clements McGee era was just so much fun to watch. You want to talk about a nice one two at corner? That was. Oh yeah, that was, that was beautiful. And, um, I couldn't agree with everything you've said more. Love the pick. It's, it's honestly great value. A guy like Nate Clements at 21 is a great pick in its own right. So I I like it. And with Clements and McGee, they had that Micah Hyde trait where when they intercepted the ball, they actually had the ability to just turning into a kick return and they could Mm -hmm. run it back for a touchdown. Well, I think, was it me? I'm trying to think. Oh, yeah. So Clements, the one thing, I don't know if you noticed it. I don't know if you looked at stats, but I had to double check it. He actually had one pick six. It was only one pick six, but he had at least a pick six in all but one of his seasons as a bill. Really? Really? So all but one of the seasons. I, I remember one in Miami in 2002. Yeah. Yeah, I gotta. I, I would have to pull it up here, and I, I honestly can't type that fast right Another now. Another so one in Miami in 2003. In 2001, he had one against Peyton Manning. The Bills got their mm-hmm. doors blown off in the RCA Dome, like 52 to 22 or something like that. But Clement started yeah, the game it, off with a pick six. It was only 2005 where he didn't because he had a career low, two interceptions. It just must have not been his year. 2004, but, uh, I remember the one he had too. Uh, it was in the Pittsburgh game. There you go. Tommy Maddox threw it. Yeah, I didn't dive too deep into it. I was trying to, I was trying to remember it when I was writing up yeah. my stuff for this and I couldn't like really find it. But I, I was like, I'm pretty sure he was the guy I remember. Cause I was trying to remember if it was McGee or Clements that did it. I was trying to remember who had a pick six, like every year just would get one, just pop one off. And it was Clements that did that. Yeah. And th- the reason I can go off a of memory on that is that is the era where I used to like re- before DVR was a thing and, you know, the NFL app was a thing. I used to record Bill's games because I just, you know, off season was long and there was no way to rewatch, rewatch NFL games. So I would just like rewatch Bill's games. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Why not? All right. So I will lead this into my last pick. And Stefan Gilmore, by the way, was on my list. I just will not give him the credit. Um, just because as everything you have said, he kind of developed more into the elite player. He was after the fact he was still a very good player, but even at pick 10, you know, there's, there's the infamous, uh, look back where he got toasted by, um, who did he get roasted by? Can't remember when he was a bill in his final year, uh, here. So I'm not going to give him the credit because you know what, just for the old vanilla sake, I'm going to give it to someone that stayed with this team for a total of 10 seasons. Hmm. He was drafted in 2003 at pick 48. Oh, no. (laughs) This is going to speak volumes about how bad our drafts are. Okay, go ahead. Yes, it is Chris Kelsey. And that is, it's honestly the perfect bookend. And yes, that does speak to how bad some of these drafts have been. Because obviously he did not have the career and statistics of an Aaron Schobel. But the one reason I'm going to put him on this list is because he was honestly very dependable when you look at his his career. I mean, it was 16 games, 16 games, 16 games, 16 games, 14 games, 16 games, 16 games, 16 games, 12 games, nine games. But at that point, he's getting into his 30s. And what can you ask? And he was always here. He was always dependable. He did finish with 443 tackles, which actually staggered me. I could not believe he was involved that much. 
I was amazed because, I mean, think about it. He only had 32 sacks, 32 and a half. Sorry, I got to give him his half. So he had still 443 tackles to put it in perspective. I believe Schobel was in like the high 490s. So just with one extra year, although he did absolutely nothing in his first year. So essentially the same length of time opposite of Aaron Schobel, he almost had as many tackles. And I don't really have too much great to say about him other than him just being a reliable body there. Um, he did lead the league in safeties with one one year. Um, just a fun fact there. But uh, he he was just a dependable guy, a name that always popped up, just was always on this team during good defensive years. And I mean, at pick 48, a guy that you can rely on to always have, you know, 40 to 60 tackles. He did have a 72 tackle year one year. And he was just always there in the locker room. He did have three interceptions to his name. That blew my mind. I, I remembered one, not three. And I was like, okay, well, he had three interceptions. But he was he was a dependable guy. And honestly, what more can you ask for for a ten year other than a ten year career out of a second round pick to stay on bad teams here in Buffalo? Yeah. So I'm gonna give him the nod. I'm gonna give him my three spot. He is my last pick. And you know, I was probably unfair with my own no. Because he was such a whipping boy in Buffalo. And that's because we, you know, he played in the era where you judge defensive ends on sacks. If you got 10 sacks, mm-hmm. you were great. If you didn't, you were a bum. And he, he, Chris Kelsey lived in that five to seven sacks a year range. But I think it's a good lesson as we get closer to the draft that not every pick needs to be a great player for it to be a good pick. If you get a guy that starts for you for 10 years in a row, it's a good pick. So it was a good pick. Um, you, we mentioned Nate Clements pick sixes. Did you know Chris Kelsey has a pick six in his career? <laughs> yes. yes. A very memorable Bills game. Do you remember the game? I want to say it was in 2007. I'm trying to put a uh, like a date to it. I'm oh. I can kind of vastly remember it. I'm trying to, I want to say it was against Dallas. You were spot on. It was the Monday night heartbreaker against Dallas where the bills got like three defensive touchdowns. No, no, no. They got two defensive touchdowns and a Terrence McGee kickoff return for a touchdown and like four Romo interceptions and still lost the bills. Oh God, I'm gonna get mad again. The bills had an eight point lead with 10 seconds to go and lost the game in regulation. Unbelievable. That is impressive. I was trying to remember if he was the pick six in that game or not. Yeah. Like I was, I was like, I'm pretty sure he was, but I couldn't. Know I that. think he, he, Oh, I know him. And then I think George Wilson was the other one to get a pick six. Yeah. I, I remember the George Wilson one for sure. That's the same year. Just fun fact. Cause I just have the, like the career, you know, year by year stats. Yeah. So 2007, he got the pick six and he led the league in safeties with one. So that's just weird. <laughs> he seems to be a guy that comes up with timely scores. Take it. And then <laughs> yeah. my favorite Chris Kelsey moment is there. I, I do not remember the year. It was like maybe 2000. It was the year T.O. was here. And J.P. Lossman was the backup quarterback for the Dolphins at this point. And Chris Kelsey was always great with the media and he always did like a, you know, little locker room session midweek and they're getting ready to play the dolphins. And somebody said to him, Hey, have you thought about the chance that, uh, you know, if there's an injury or something, you could see JP Lossman this week. And Chris Kelsey just kind of like looked up at the guy 
kind of chuckled and goes, well, I guess you can always hope. And I just thought that was like the best response ever. Cause usually you get those, those canned responses like, Oh yeah, it'd be fun to see him out there. I still got a lot of respect for JP. He's a great player. Wish him the best. He was like, I mean, I guess you can always hope it was just like, he's trash. And if he plays, that's a good thing for us. Um, yeah, so that, that's a good pick. I'm interested to see how the voting goes when I'm going to post it on, um, Twitter tomorrow to see who people think got the best of this big three. And that is going to do it for our look at the defensive side of the Buffalo Bills draft plans. But have no fear. Our draft coverage is only just beginning. We have dove into the offensive side. We've dove into the defensive side tonight, but we still have multiple weeks left. We are going to look at this draft from every angle for the Buffalo Bills. So by the time this kicks off here in three weeks, you will know exactly what the Bills are going to do, what to expect when they're on the clock. We might even throw some mock drafts in there to tell you what we're thinking as certain scenarios happen. We have a lot planned here for the next few weeks as we are getting closer and closer to the 2022 draft. Luke, any final thoughts before we sign off? No, I'm excited to keep going. Honestly, I cannot wait to keep doing everything we're doing leading up to the draft, and I am very, very excited to see how that works out. Yep, and I'm excited to see how you react if they have two cornerbacks there that you like and they end up taking a guard. Oh, God, I don't want to think about that. They have to get a webcam or a live cam shot of you. That reaction would be Uh, be amazing. Well, hopefully that doesn't happen. Hopefully they get somebody that we're both happy with and they'll be happy thoughts. But hey, if not, that's what Bill's Chat's for. When you're upset, you come to Bill's Chat, you talk it out, and you get it out of your system. So... For Luca, this is Josh. We'll be back next week with another episode of Bill's Chat. Until then, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to another episode of Bill's Chat, a pro football podcast. Be sure to also give us a follow on Twitter at Bill's Chat Pod and spread the word. And appreciate you listening through Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you can find this podcast. Talk to you again next week.